Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Turkey hunt's one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt. When I'm hunting turkeys, it is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER, for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. All right, suckers. We've been talking all the time about our, our live tour. Me, Cal, Yanni, a lot of special guests. Live tour coming up. Everything's sold out. we got two dates left. Got a lock at home. April 15 and April 16. April 15, Mesa Arts Center, Mesa, Arizona. So that's like your Phoenix market. April 16th, City National Grove, Anaheim, California. Again, me, the Lavine Eagle, OCAL, special guests, Meat Eater Live, April 15th, Mesa Art Center, Mesa, Arizona. April 16th, City National Grove, Anaheim, California. Get your tickets. Let's finish this thing up. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. I think listeners ought to know that, that Phil the Engineer has... Uh, He's got a, he like he's not good at starting that timer. <laughs> you might have to go back behind the curtain. Might have to go back into the. Oh uh, come on, Jim. Might have to go back into the <laughs> back into the resumes. Hey. <laughs> uh, we were just talking about uh, mountain lions, and Cal was talking about what a mountain lion does when it drops down into like a pen full of llamas. If I was a mountain lion, I would be a llama specialist. That big neck. Hard hard to miss. You could be drunk. <laughs> A drunk cat. You get drunk. <laughs> no matter what, you're gonna get it. With the neck, with a neck like that, that's what that would be a I would be a llama specialist mountain lion. Yeah, they really like to keep their heads high too. Yeah, so I would de- I would out. quickly depopulate uh, the nation. It'd be a llama uh, epidemic, an epidemic of llama losses. A uh, couple things. Do, do, I don't know if you guys. There's a couple of news things I want to talk about before we before we get into it. Um, 
I just got any, I haven't like dug into this yet, but G- Disney's redoing. They're doing a, I don't know, they're doing a live action Bambi remake. I, I was told about this yesterday, I believe. Yeah, oh, man. Um, a live action. So it's going to be like, you know, that, that's, that stupid thing they did with the lions talking like people. Yes. So Their Lion King Phil, remake. Phil uh, showed me the intro to the Lion King deal, and then he explained that it is they didn't vary or they didn't vary the story at all. It's the exact same story from the animated, the full animated version. Yeah, but it's just like actual lions being like, "What's up, man?" Phil <laughs> called it disturbing. <laughs> so now it's gonna be like a buck. Yeah, they're gonna be like, "No." Well, no. it's tough, man, because you got these these lions, you know. Voiced by humans, but with absolutely no human facial expressions. Just yeah, it's yeah. It's, but I mean, a, un, deer, a deer is decidedly less. A deer is decidedly less uh, sort of facially active. Uh huh. So it's going to be even worse than than the lions. I hope there's a part in that movie where um, you ever see the trail cam footage of deer eating baby birds out of nests. I hope that's part of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a good part of the movie. Um, How do you, I, I would kill to be. I, I've helped out in in the movie world on on one script as far as like hunting accuracies, and it's something. Oh, that, you did some consulting. Yeah, hmm. tell me the movie. Years ago, deer hunter. Uh, <laughs> Last of the Mohicans. <laughs> no, it was it the was Revenant called Walking Out. Oh, yeah. Which um, I was all excited for a minute because I was if you did any of those movies, I was gonna smack you because <laughs> you did such a shit job. Speaking of resumes, uh, yeah, uh, but that was for for my buddy Colin helping him, and it's just like the, the oh, is this Colin world? dude like a horse dude? No, he's not a horse dude, lives up in Whitefish. Yeah, he's a whitefish guy. Sure, he's not a horse dude. A little no. bit like a wrangler, he used to wrangle horses for movies. No, he just kind of looks like that type of person, though. You met him once. Anyway. Well, I met a dude once named that who was a horse wrangler for movies. Oh, no. Lived up in that neck of the woods. No. I always call this guy a young McConaughey cause, <laughs> just because of his hair more than anything. No, different guys. Yeah. But the, the movie world just, they fight so hard against reality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like It's just they'd want no part of it. You know, did you see that thing I did that... GQ breakdown. Oh, that was fantastic. So like yes. GQ, like GQ magazine, they have this thing, they do the breakdown. So you can go watch like a Navy SEAL breaking down Navy SEAL scenes in movies. There's a chef breaking down cooking scenes in movies. There's on and on and on. There's many of them. Uh, Alex Arnold, the climber, breaks down climbing scenes in movies. I did one with breaking down tracking and hunting scenes in movies. And leading up to it, I was talking to someone and I was like, man, why don't these movie people, like, why don't they hire a guy? To come in and be like, no, 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 you know, you should make it like this. That'll seem more real. And he said, oh, they do. They just don't listen to him. (laughs) (laughs) They like to have him around just, you know, just to be like, no, man, I wouldn't do it like that. You don't, you know, you you don't got a tape here with a machete. And they're like, in this movie we do. Plus, like we said, uh, the general uh, way of doing things has changed quite a bit because you look at the reality of uh, the Robert Redford, Jeremiah Johnson elk shot. Yeah, <laughs> like that elk died. Oh yeah, as you pointed out, and they <laughs> took some heat. They took some heat for it, and Ro- Robert Redford kind of like justified it and explained it. And then in, in McGuane's movie Rancho Deluxe, greatest 
film ever made. Um, they, you know, they shoot a steer with a Sharps rifle. Um, and he expressed to me that he was glad they don't do it that way anymore. Oh. They bought a steer, shot it. And when you watch the movie, if you're familiar with any kind of hunting or farming or anything, when you watch the movie, there's no confusion. <laughs> you watch Last of the Mohicans, it's like when they shoot a deer, it's like that deer, I don't know what happened to that deer, it wasn't shot. That was well, just, I don't know what. It went from a live deer to a stuffed thing. No, it goes. Somersault. Yeah, so, yeah, like a stuffed, <laughs> like they threw a stuffed animal through the woods somersaulting. Yeah, I, I imagine how for the amount of folks uh, that are on a film set, how some could, it, it could probably cast a, a shadow over production for a day. Uh, if you're, if you're <laughs> not familiar <laughs> with watching the uh, the light fade from something's eyes. Yeah, anyone with sensitivities might want to come to work late today. Uh, you know, I don't know, I'm about ready to quit talking about, I don't know, Phil, let me ask you, just as an impartial observer. Sure. Do you think we should um, cease covering severed finger stories or no <laughs> well what has the feedback been like more it's just we get flooded with severed finger stories and images have you gotten anybody that's saying you're you're making me gag while i listen to your podcast no they just send us more and more graphic i have pictures of severed fingers that would curl your hair okay well i think as i said as... i sent one to my wife and she was genuinely mad at me for two days <laughs> I, I would be too it was about midnight <laughs> yeah. i was in a different time zone and I sent her an image. Yeah. And no, mean, no explanation. This is an audio <laughs> medium, though. So I think, you know, I think you're okay. I want to post them to Instagram, but I feel like I'd get banished. Oh, yeah, for sure. You mm. got sent the the grinder one, right? Yeah. That's, that is haunting. Yeah, that that is, Especially if you grind your own meat, because the hand, when it gets eventually cut out of the grinder... Is very familiar. Mm. Very familiar. The yeah. Tendony chunks. I might start a page, <laughs> a separate page. Oh. On the dark web. <laughs> Before I get into it, I, I, I uh, anyways, a couple more finger stories. First, Jim Heffelfinger. That's a hell of a name. Actually, speaking my, of severed fingers. My grandfather severed his finger at the railroad rail, rail house. We right? called him Grandpa Heffelfinger for <laughs> most of <laughs> oh, his Oh, that's life. fantastic. Yeah, it's an unusual last name you have. Yep. yep. Tell, pe- tell people your job real quick. Swiss German, my name name is Swiss German. I'm the wildlife science coordinator for Arizona Game Fish Department. But you got your like, you're in there, man. You mix it up. It's fun. You Lot write articles, listen to stuff, monitor stuff, argue, mm. get all in interesting. trouble. <laughs> it's all interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I started being interested in Jimmy because he sends so many clarifications and corrections. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. No, no, not <laughs> at all. No, okay. you do it very respectfully. <laughs> Like, we'll get a lot of guys that, like, send in a correction or two, and you can just see over the months, you'll see them just become very agitated. But they're not getting the level of attention they want, and then they just turn, ne- and then they turn like they, like, hate you, but still listen. And you want to write them there and be like, you know, you could not listen. Um, but yes. it doesn't occur to them. Uh, but here, uh, okay. This guy's talking about, uh, this guy's talking about another great story. So this guy's, um, this guy got married, and his best man's dad had retired and started, I don't know understand this. He tired, retired and moved to a golf course and he would kill time by mowing the lawn. I feel like it must've been a spare job, not volunteer. Would you move to a golf course and volunteer to mow the golf course? Listen, my grandpa yeah. would volunteer and mow lawns mm-hmm. out of the golf course that he loved. 
I, I did not yep. understand it, but uh, my buddies who were working out at that uh, golf course as like caddies, yeah. they loved it. They're like, yeah, I saw your grandpa. Really? Came by on the mower today. <laughs> I, I've been anti-golf my whole life, but I'm huge. I'm super pro-golf now. <laughs> I don't want to tell people why. I don't want to tell people <laughs> about what, what happened with me and the flip-flop flasher, but now we're like major golf supporters. At least it's green space. I'm uh, not a golfer, but a major golf supporter. I support the golf industry. My dad always said, I'm friends with the golf industry. Hit the ball and chase it. Hit the ball and chase it. Look yeah. at those simps out there. Hit the ball and chase it. <laughs> oh, no, listen. I'm a golf supporter, but I mean, and I love all golfers, and I support all golf courses, but uh, it's a moronic sport. <laughs> um, anyways, this guy's out mowing the golf course. You can just picture this. So he's in, he's in a mower that's got a roll bar, and he's coming in, and there's a, there's a pole with a guy line, a guy cable coming mm. off of it. So he realizes that the roll bar and the cable are going to make contact. So he, re, he's got it. He, he breaks as he realizes, and he reaches up to put some up pressure on the guy line to clear it from the roll bar. But then his foot slips off of the brake. <sighs> Phil, can you put in a um a good noise? <laughs> it sounds like this. <laughs> But it's like a, right? I mean, is that the sound of flesh or the sound of uh, like what's what's happening here with that noise? That's the cable cutting his That's, finger off. Okay, yeah. So a combination. Of I, sounds, I think sure. the most disturbing part of all of these is there's rarely a scenario where I don't see myself having narrowly avoided that happening to me, or I can't be like, oh, I could see how I would do that. There's a great detail. He says that his <laughs> the ten, the tendon. There's a oh, tendons find their way into these stories. The tendon is someone sent us a picture of it. It's like a, a finger with like 16 inches of tendon. Like the tendon came off up at the elbow. But the tendon, he said, is wrapped around the cable. This is he's a good writer. He says it's similar if you took a ribbon. And run it along a pair of scissors to <laughs> coil it up. That's how he's describing mm. the coil of the tendon and this man then getting up there and unwrapping his uh, unwrapping his finger mm. from the cable. Uh, another good finger story. This is the last one for today. There's two stories. One has nothing to do with fingers. Guy was saying his, uh, his old man's a welder, and he had a big welding glove on, and his super hot chunk of slag got down his welding glove and lodged against his wedding ring, and his wedding ring got so hot that it burnt a scar circle around his finger. Now he doesn't wear a wedding ring because he's got a scar circle instead. <laughs> he's got a scar as a wedding ring. And a story. Uh, yeah. Oh, two more things, man. I just said one more, but two more. Nah. Shoot. What do you think, Jim? You getting yeah. bored? No, I like finger stories. It's not even a finger story. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm not bored. All right. We we're talking the other day. We had an episode where Tom Hall would drop stuff down ice holes. And this guy, this guy drops a 357 Smith & Wesson down the, down the ice hole. Which leads you to be like, why? <laughs> Absolutely, why? Like, that is not a common part of my ice <laughs> kit. He said curing? it was stainless. And so the real bummer was he couldn't get it with a magnet. <laughs> He sends in a video of him in his ice house. He gets his ice house ripping hot with a heater, and he's in his ice house with his swim trunks. 
<laughs> he goes down the hole, can't find it, comes back up. He looks in like rough shape, man. He gets warm back up again. His buddy's filming it. He looks in like totally rough shape. And he gets psyched up enough and dives back down there again and comes out pretty much. His buddy's like reeling back in with a rope tied around his ankle and he's got that pistol. <laughs> <laughs> he says they were toting it around because they kept seeing wolves out on the ice. Oh my gosh. Pretty funny. Uh, that's good. All right. Uh, Jim Halfelfinger, let's start out with this. So, you know, I guess first off, tell people like what your sort of scope is. Your, your, the scope of your life's work as a yep. wildlife guy. Yep. So I spent 22 years as a regional biologist in Tucson for Arizona Game and Fish Department. And then the last four years, I moved to kind of a statewide position called Wildlife Science Coordinator. And the gist of that job is to, to have someone kind of free-floating that can do some of the deep dives into the science and, and make sure that we've got good science supporting the policies and the decisions we make as an agency. So that's pretty unusual to have a state wildlife agency to, to be, I think, forward-thinking enough to have someone like that to make sure that we're providing a good scientific foundation on the things we do. And your work, uh, I know that just from talking to you about various issues around the country, inherently your work spreads beyond Arizona because wildlife issues don't stop at state lines, right? Yeah, and one of the biggest reasons I'm involved in a lot of Westwide stuff is I'm, I'm also, there's a, an association of, of 24 Western state wildlife agencies, state and provincial wildlife agencies, and it's called the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, and they get together twice a year, and they have some subcommittees and some uh, working groups, and I've chaired, I've been on the mule deer working group uh, for more than 20 years now, and I've chaired it for the last 13 or 14 years. And so as a, as a chair that oversees a mule deer expert from each of those 24 Western agencies, we as a group and, and me as the chair are, are real involved in all the Western migration stuff. You had Matt Kaufman here and, and yeah. Kevin Monteith talking about some of the stuff they're doing. I've been working with Matt and Kevin um, actually an awful lot on a lot of these things in the West. But that, that position through the Western Association chairing that group really puts me um, – involved and, and in the seat to do a lot of things throughout the West too. Uh, I know some of the bigger things you get involved in, like, you know, all your big game and your charismatic megafauna. Mm -hmm. um, how low down in the, what's the smallest thing yeah. you're involved in? Well, my 22 years as a regional biologist, I was in charge of three species of quail, Goulds turkey restoration um, in southeastern Arizona, uh, mountain lions, bighorn sheep, pronghorn, all of all of the hunted species is what I dealt with from big game to small game. Okay. So that was most of my career. And it's really the last uh, four years or so that I've been doing primarily a lot of big game, a lot of big game Western stuff, um, various miscellaneous science support for the agency, and then Mexican wolf recovery, which I've been involved in for the last 10 years. Oh, for a decade now? Mm -hmm. All right, we'll get to that a little bit. I know that's a it's constant. A part of what I do. Yeah, and it's a constantly changing landscape. It is minefield, you might say. Yeah. Uh, all right. First question. Some quick hitter topics for you. Um, and a lot of this is inspired by feedback you've given us when questions emerge on other shows. One of the things we've emailed about was this, and we've we touched on this, like news reports about this or confusion about this, is uh, there's this, it seems to be this emerging idea that people are like, well, if, if, Hunters go out and they want to kill, like hunters want to get big bucks, right? Hunters want to shoot big bucks. They want to shoot big, big horn sheep. They want to shoot big moose. If you go out and selectively target big bucks, are you changing the evolutionary path of the species? Meaning you're putting a, you know, you're putting a selective pressure 
against big antler deer. This is an argument against trophy mm-hmm. hunting, right? Mm-hmm. And that by doing that, you're making them, you're driving them to become smaller. Right. Right. You buying it? Not buying it? No. With, with servants with a deer family, there's, there's no evidence of that at all. This all came to light. It's not even that new. It's just once in a while a reporter will learn about it and then write an article about it and think they're the first one to write about it. But it really caught— uh, That's a good way of expressing how things like this come up. It, and, they, and they stay alive like that. Um, someone thinks that, hey, I just found out this new thing, but everybody's been discussing it for— 17 years, which has been about the case with this. In 2003, David Coltman came out with well, a When we talk about severed fingers, you don't feel that way, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, we can keep doing that. <laughs> keep doing that. These guys think they discovered severed fingers. <laughs> so there was, a, there was a paper in 2003 that really lit the world on fire on this whole topic. You didn't hear about it In 2003? 2003. That, okay. That's how long. And that's really the genesis of all this recent kind of interest in that, in that topic. But they, there was a, there's a population on the east side of the Alberta Rockies, and it's separated from the, the main part of the Rockies. Bighorns. Bighorns, yeah. Okay. It's called Ram Mountain, and it's a, it's a really small little dot out away from the rest of the sheep populations. I got to stop you. Mm-hmm. Ex- okay. You mentioned with cervids, but now we're talking about. Yep, sheep. Yeah. So right. Help right. people yep. through that. And, and I've just, I just mentioned cervids right off the bat to, to almost dismissed that because, and we can talk about some of the reasons. Tell me what cervids are too, just because. The deer family. So okay. so moose and elk and deer and, and um, anything in the deer family with basically with antlers with a few exceptions. Yep. So so this whole idea of trophy hunters um, ruining the gene pool, degrading the gene pool, some of the popular media call it evolution in reverse. That has really been focused on bighorn sheep or wild sheep. And, and it all comes from this one isolated, unique population called Ram Mountain in Alberta. And they did some research on there, and they they reported in 2003 in Nature that hunters selecting the largest rams were actually causing a genetic change in the population so that there were smaller and smaller rams uh, in that population. And then that same author even came out in 2008 and said, well, my work in 2003 really probably over-exaggerated the genetic component of that. There's really more nutrition um, than I originally said in that paper. But it was too late. The the popular media took that and just ran with it. And you saw it, you saw it everywhere. And part of it was for people who don't like hunting and people who don't like trophy hunting, it was such an irresistible story. Trophy hunters, something negative about trophy hunters. And, and some people just love that. And so trophy hunters are ruining the gene pool and all the popular media picked up on that. And then there's even some scientists who don't like trophy hunting and don't like hunting. And so they started looking at other data sets and, and see if they could produce a paper that looked uh, something similar. And all of the subsequent papers that came out, they would cite the Ram Mountain information, which we later found out to be uh, over-exaggerated in the genetic component. And these, and these other scientists would speculate, um, citing Ram Mountain, and then speculate that this may be happening in these other areas, and it may be happening with all big game, may be happening with all species worldwide that humans uh, harvest. And so these other papers were just full of speculation, but every time someone published a paper to speculate, someone else could cite the speculative paper and the Ram Mountain paper, and these started to build this body of speculation. And and now we're starting to get back and apply some science to that and find out that it's it's it may happen in a few cases, but it's certainly not widespread. But it's too late. The public has, has seen the popular message and aren't reading scientific papers. But the bottom line is, if selection is intensive enough, it can affect the gene pool in the future. What you need to think about is, in what cases is selection intensive enough to actually change the gene pool in sheep or 
or deer or, or any other species that we hunt? And the answer is it's a very rare case. And, and the case on Ram Mountain was unique because it was isolated. The population swelled and bottlenecked a few times, <clears throat> which can affect the genetics. And also they had a hunting regime there where it was an unlimited number of hunters could hunt that little isolated uh, mountain range, little isolated mountain. But they had to be four-fifths curl before they were legal to harvest. And so that's a situation where the rams that have faster growing horns, better genetics, faster growing horns, are going to get truncated. They're going to get taken out of the field as soon as they hit four-fifths. And so that's a case where the rams that have faster growing horns are going to be removed at a higher proportion than rams with slower growing horns. So that was the basis of this Coldman. And so there's, it's, so theoretically and in practice there, it's not flawed that in certain situations that can happen. We did some more uh, recent research with, with Kevin Montese's lab, Taylor Lashar is a, a graduate student, where we took state bighorn sheep records. And state records were important because we had horn measurements and we also had ages on those rams, which is something the Boone and Crockett Pope and Young record books don't have ages. They just have measurements. Oh, and they don't, they don't record the number of annuli on a horn? <clears throat> um, not not uh, Boone and Crockett. No, it's measurements. You know, they got their measurement system. And then on the data sheet there, they can put um, age on some of the species. But I'm not sure if they even do it with bighorn sheep huh. on there. Yeah, and a problem, too, is you have to be, like, pretty well trained at yeah, it's not it's not that easy. There's some there's some experience that goes into it. But state agencies do record age and record some measurements. Sometimes okay. full Boone and Crockett, sometimes just bases plus the length of the horn. And so we went to the state records and got all the state records we could assembled into a database where we had age and we had uh, the antler or the horn measurements. And then we were able to analyze these these sheep records. And we were able to, to uh, accommodate or neutralize the, the effective age because, obviously, the older the ram, the bigger the horns. And so you, you got it in your analysis. You've, you've got to be able to um, look at that and ferret that part of the, the analysis out. And then we were also able to look at some um, NDVI index, which is a greenness index of satellite uh, imagery. And we were able to look at, at uh, nutrition and environment and how that affected horn size in these in these states and in these populations. And, and in the end, we analyzed um, data from 35 years from 72 different hunt units around uh, North America. Um, and, and in the end, we found that of those 72 units, 78% um, of them were either stable or the horn size was increasing. Okay. So only 22% even showed a decline. Now, we don't even know yet what that decline is, but in those 22 that declined, only half of those had a hunt regime that even even could possibly exert some kind of selective pressure. You know, sometimes you can just look at a hunt system and and, and like a complete permit system that Arizona has, where someone just takes one, just one ram tag. Yeah, yeah one tag per mountain range. So you're not yeah. you don't have that kind of selective pressure like you have if you have unlimited number of hunters creaming that that horn size at a certain level. And so even in the 22 where they, they weren't stable or increasing in horn length, they were decreasing, um, still about half of those could even have possibly been due to some selective pressure. And so the, the bottom line is even in sheep, which is the only species that this has really been um, found in a, in a controlled setting, it, it's very unusual to have that kind of hunting regime that, that would actually apply that selective pressure to cause kind of genetic changes. And all this is confounded terribly with, uh, with nutrition more nutrition an animal gets, the bigger the horns and antlers. The older the animal gets, the bigger the horns and antlers. And and there's um, 
all kinds of obstacles, which is a paper you saw that I wrote, all kinds of obstacles that get in the way of hunters actually affecting the, the gene pool. And when a hunter goes out and shoots, passes up a spike and shoots an eight-point whitetail buck in Iowa, technically that's selection because they passed up one buck and they selected a bigger buck. But you have to look at the intensity of selection. Is that anywhere near um, intensive enough to cause any genetic changes? And you think about all of the other things that are removing animals from the population that have nothing to do with horn or antler size. You have, for example, a fawn crop. You lose half of the fawns uh, every year before their first birthday uh, in, in general. And those losses of half of that annual cohort have nothing to do with horn or antler size. You've got mountain lions, you've got predators um, killing adults that have nothing to do with antler size. And the idea that hunters going out during daylight hours in the hunt unit they have a permit for, only able to take uh, males, the fact that the, the idea that they're affecting that entire gene pool is just ludicrous that you would apply that kind of pressure. It could happen in some cases in sheep, but uh, it's pretty rare. Well, there's so much, so much conflicting data out there too as, as to how much we're actually even, we, I guess, hunters in certain cases are actually even affecting behavior. Like you see all these whitetail papers that come out and it's like, well, the bucks have gone no nocturnal. It's mm -hmm. like, well, no, we tracked them and they do just as much walking around during the day as they do at night. Yeah. I mean, hunting affects behavior hugely. Oh. Of game animals. But like you look at these club situations, right? Where it's like you got five guys hunting, you know, a thousand acres. They're out there maybe 25 days total between the five guys. And they all have the same story as Joe dude going out on public land. It's like the deer are so educated. Yeah, but it's generational too. I mean, they're raised by, I mean, these are animals that spend a year with their mother, who spend a year with her mother, who spend a year with her mother. There's a learned, yeah. you know, there's a learned response. I mean, you just go look at landscapes where you always had hunting and then, and then took it away. Oh, that, that spot that we hunted, uh, oh, Eric Siegfried from Onyx and I hunted this year. Yeah. It's this funky access deal where you kind of have to get up on this rock rim. And I, Swear to God, 30% or more of the mule deer does just walked below staring at that rock rim. <laughs> like they just were locked on it. Yeah, and when you and your buddy sneak in and always hunt Yellowstone, I mean, you guys always <laughs> act like you hunted somewhere else. But, I mean, <laughs> you guys do really well in there, right? <laughs> you and your buddy. Well, better than anybody else. <laughs> um, do you get frustrated by the way stuff's covered in the media? Uh, it's got to make you mad. It, it makes it me is. mad, it and does. I'm not even a scientist. It does. But when you know the science, and the public's not reading scientific papers, so when you know the science and you see something like that just catch fire and run away in the popular yeah. media, and it's not true and it's exaggerated, and everything that you read is just full of errors, and, and that's what everybody, that's what most of the general public's reading. So, and there's, like, credible so. places that run with it, too. Like, National Geographic mm -hmm. could cover the piss out of a story like that. Yep. They would never cover the – like, when it wound up being that it wasn't accurate – they would have mm -hmm. zero interest yep. in it because they love anything that can be like a little bit like put a little taint on hunting. They love it. Yep. Like they go out of their way to find it. They would never be like, oh, you know, it turns out that that wasn't actually true. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I mean, like like the bias is so within an organization like that, like the bias is yeah. so severe. Oh, that's I mean, story. And even like you look at this thing that's going on with uh, Donald Trump Jr., right? He's doing a fundraiser. He's doing a fundraiser where they're going to go hunt ducks and blacktail deer. And the media is covering it like a trophy animal hunt. I'm like, yeah. oh, that's mm -hmm. a, a, 
hunting ducks and blacktails is a trophy animal hunt now? Yeah. Well, they, yeah. But it's like that's how, that's how it's described. The uh, did you guys saw the um, so the uh, IUCN mm-hmm. uh, is a b- body that I pay attention to for a lot of conservation, up-to-date conservation mm-hmm. facts and knowledge. And um, a lot of stories came out earlier uh, or late last year on how the IUCN has determined that trophy hunting is this terrible thing and it's killing these animal populations. And you start reading into it and the not IUCN... Not meat hunting. Not, not bush hunting. Not bush meat hunting. No. Yeah, right. But the, the paper is... <clears throat> They're like, well, this is a something that was being researched, and it's not even the conclusion. Somebody just took it and ran this out. This is not our finding. But mm-hmm. nobody covered that story. Yeah. It yeah. was always like, there's oh, been, here it is. There's been Thank some you. good pushback, some letters. I think I sent you something recently with the uh, Conservation Frontlines is a, a, is an email um, service that you you can subscribe to free, and they have some really good information about some scientists have gotten together, and some some people in Africa have gotten together, and representing local African communities. And the African communities are saying, "How dare Western um, people take away our livelihood? The, the, you know, this is sustainable conservation. It's funding conservation. It's funding our villages. And how how dare someone sit in their White House, someplace in the U.S., and, and say this isn't a good thing?" Yeah, it's like the it's like left wing imperialism, man. <laughs> oh, the bands going on in the UK. <laughs> it's right? Just like, That's right. It's like right. it's like a it's like mm-hmm. a softer, gentler imperialism. Mm-hmm. I, do you think the UK bands are kind of a uh, little long term guilt laden thing, as from the days of uh, British imperialism? No, where it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's no, fine. All they're like they're like tacking a little, like the old pendulum, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, Shane Mahoney asked me to be on the IUCN Sustainable Use and Livelihoods Committee. So that's one of the committees that he chairs and real active with. And it, it's all about this. I like the IUCN ratings. Yeah, I oh, do too. Yeah. Um, we should I say tend to, I tend to um, I, I tend to eat a lot of things that are of least concern. Yeah, except <laughs> I was I was recently looking at the mountain lion um, IUCN rating. They changed it. It says that it's decreasing. It says that the populations are decreasing. I yeah, I looked at that. I don't understand for that. a mountain lion. I don't understand that either. In fact, one of the the main paper they cite for that um, is someone I I work with with Mexican wolf um, recovery. And I sent him an email with a link to that. And and since they were citing their work, I just asked him what what is that all about. And I haven't heard from him yet. But well, they that's, get it. They, I feel that the IUCN does a little bit play a predictive game. But he, but even that with mountain lions predicting a, a decline. Yeah, when something's on an increase, how do you predict? Yeah, so that that's just patently wrong. Yeah, uh, we should well, say International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you go on, you know, the, the the Wikipedia gives a lot of ink to the IUCN. So if you type in any species, like if you go in the other day, we were looking at uh, we we're looking at um the long-tailed weasel. So the IUCN long-tailed weasel, it would have it like population of least concern. Mm-hmm. Which is the which is like the best news the species can get. The the thing you want is to be in least concern, and yeah. it's it's graded out over. I don't know how many designations, and it's yeah. five or six or whatever. There's a spectrum there, yeah. And there's like a most concern, and then a critical concern. I think yeah. there's extinct. I think and some of them are extinct. just extinct. Yeah, yeah. Okay, next question. We have before you've done some work with Val. We talk about Val Geis all the damn time. He's a good friend of mine. Is he? Uh-huh. Good friend. Twenty years. Okay. Uh, In fact, I brought Ben O'Brien Val Geist bone broth recipe. 
Oh. I asked Val for it, and I got <laughs> it. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Val guys, okay, we talked, we covered this before. Val guys had a, he took a stab at what, I don't know if I want to redo it. He took a stab on how the mule deer came to be. Mm-hmm. I, I presented this to some mule deer researchers, and they were they were not titillated by it. Yeah, they didn't even want to take it on. They, they thought <laughs> it was like fanciful and like not understandable. But it was this idea that for I'm going to do a short version. Cal, hold your thumb out, and as you get bored, start going down. <laughs> I was going to start in the Pliocene, so you're doing better. Okay, you're, you're, oh, no, I'm not going. Okay. Oh, if you know, oh, you, here's what we could do. Let me try to do a crash course in what I'd read. Mm-hmm. He floated this idea that three million years ago, in the like what is now the southeastern U.S., there'd always been white-tailed deer. Cal's thumb is still up. How'd, what'd you do? Bang your thumb with a hammer? <laughs> your kid asked me that, too, and I got to tell you the same thing. I, I don't know. It's that, just that was an MD 750 right there. <laughs> uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. There's always been white-tailed deer in what's now the southeastern U.S. We had this big wet you know, period of, of, of lush growth and these deer colonized coast to coast, colonized the, 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 the mid-continent from the east coast of the U.S. to the west coast. Then it was a big dry period and the empty, in the middle emptied out. And these deer on the west that were remained on the west coast gradually evolved into blacktails. Then there was another period where it was moist and conditions were good and this population of blacktails moved east. The whitetails, which had retreated to the southeastern U.S., had moved back west. They met along the rocky front. The rocky mountain front had sex. Um, and spawned mule deer. Hybridized. And then there was another great retraction. Blacktails went back to the coast. Whitetails went back down to the southeast. And this lingering population of these hybridized I think it was blacktail bucks making love to whitetail does. Mm-hmm. Um, that's your mule deer. Um, yes. And they said, uh, th- I presented to some mule deer people, and, and they had a response kind of like, uh, let's move on. Well, that, yeah. <laughs> well, there was, some, there, was some, there was a scientific basis for Val coming up with that theory, which has been superseded by other genetic work that came along. Yeah. So tell us. It, now it's, now not, it's time it's for you to some, tell us, like, how, yep. what, what's up with all the deer? So that was, that was basically it. I think it was, it was glaciers um, advancing and receding rather than wet and dry, I think, probably. Oh, Just was it? changing environments, changing habitats yeah. that were causing a split. But, but regardless, that's basically the story that, that Val came up with. And, and he did that for a reason because when they start, first started doing genetic work, they found out that black-tailed deer have completely different mitochondrial DNA than mule deer, yet they're subspecies. So there's oh. two kinds of DNA. There's, there's DNA in the nucleus, and you get this nuclear DNA, and you get half of that from your mother, half from your father. There's another kind of DNA floating around in the cells outside the nucleus called mitochondrial DNA. And mitochondrial DNA you only get from your mother. So it's like a clone. It comes from your mother and your grandmother and, and her mother. Yeah, that's how they like contract okay. down sort of the, you know, like all of Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Yep. Theoretically track all of to Western Europe to like a female. Yep, to an Eve. Mitochondrial right. Eve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the mitochondrial, so you can, you want to analyze both types of DNA and, and they yield different answers to different kinds of questions. But Initial mitochondrial DNA analysis showed, you think about really the two black-tailed deer subspecies are just subspecies of mule deer. They're all Oticoles hemionis, some subspecies. And then you have whitetail, which are a different species, Virginianus. And yet when they looked at the mitochondrial DNA, they found out that mule deer and white-tailed deer have basically the same mitochondrial DNA. 
which is bizarre because they're different species. And, and both of them, including mule deer, have different mitochondrial DNA from blacktails. So blacktails have this unique mitochondrial DNA. So Val took that, just thinking about that, Val said, well, that could probably occur if female, if, if black-tailed deer bred with white-tailed deer and, and the offspring brought in that white-tailed deer mitochondrial DNA. So if you had female um, white-tailed deer breeding with black-tailed males and they spawned some kind of hybrid mule deer, then all those mule deer would have the same mitochondrial DNA as the white-tail. Oh, because, ah. because it comes through the female line. And so if it was female white-tail, then mule deer would have that same mitochondrial DNA. You following this, Phil? And black-tails would be different. And so that, just going on that, that was a basis of so his theory. So that's what inspired that. That's what inspired it. So it made sense at the time. But later on, more work, especially with nuclear DNA, that you get half from your mother, half from your father, you look at mule deer nuclear DNA, and and it's it's closely aligned with blacktails. Blacktail and mule deer are all closely associated. And then whitetail is completely different. So if they really were hybrids, then the mule deer, when you look at the nuclear DNA, they would have about half of the whitetail genome and about half of the blacktail genome. But they don't. Mule deer and blacktail deer evolved as one group. And then blacktail deer split off during one of the advances of the ice ages over in the Pacific coast. So theor- okay. So in this version of events, mule deer um, predated blacktails. Yes. Yep. In in that version. What, right. But here's and the weird thing: like, why does a sick of white tail looks or a sick of black tail looks so damn much like a white tail? I know that that antler is antler growth, er, like and, everything. Well, even like metatarsal glands. There's other things where the black tailed deer actually looks like a hybrid, which makes it is confusing as hell. Because the black tailed deer looks almost like it's got some white tail like characteristics, but when sure, you look man. at genetics, the black tail can't be can't be a hybrid um, between those two. And so it's got to be convergent evolution where they, they kind of acquire traits that are similar, even though they're not. Um, yeah, like dragonflies and hummingbirds. We talked about this the other day. Dragonflies and hummingbirds both uh-huh. fly. That doesn't mean they're cousins. Yep. So we did genetic <laughs> analysis. We did some genetic analysis all up and down the, the coast in blacktails from California up to Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, and then mid-British Columbia, it starts, you start getting into Sitka blacktails up into Alaska. And we had them all and analyzed all of those and, and found the highest concentration of genetic diversity was the coast of Oregon and Washington in black-tailed deer, both subspecies of black-tailed deer. And, and geneticists, population geneticists will tell you that where you have a focal point with high genetic diversity right there, and then lower genetic diversity radiating out from that, that indicates that was the refugium. That's, the, that's ground zero for that species or that animal. And so likely the black-tailed deer were isolated for a long time during one of the many glacial advances and receding over on that coast and then gradually uh, expanded out from there with the receding of the glaciers. And so, so why does a Sitka then look different than the Colombian? And I don't know the answer to like that. Like why he doesn't typically have a bifurcated antler, like a forked antler, a well, forked tine. Well, the mature Sitkas do. They tend to throw a rack a hell of a lot like a whitetail. They look, they're small, they're about the same size like that. The mature ones will have the, the G2s. Yeah, like gotcha. that. But Sitkas have a double white bib on their throat. Um, they're a, kind of a different tail. They look yeah. real different. And that, nobody knows for sure what kind of separation there might have been in some glacial period between Colombian blacktail and Sitka blacktail. The Sitka could just be a phenotypic or a physical adaptation to that marine environment, swimming and living on islands and that kind of environment. Yep. It could be adaptation and they're physically changing 
not so much because of the separation. Nobody really knows that, that for sure. Man, between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it's never ending. I'm talking about the, the, the subscriptions, the monthly dings on your credit card. Well, thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on the ones I forgot about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. Meaning, you know, like, let's say there's like a show that comes out and you want to watch it and you wind up doing like this free trial and you forget about it. And then two years later, you realize you're paying those hosers 12 bucks a month for something you don't use. It finds that stuff, cancels it. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Yeah, I've said it before and I'll say it a thousand times more. If you got a family and you got people that rely on you, you need to take life insurance seriously. And Policy Genius is the country's leading online insurance marketplace. So with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars in coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Your life insurance policy you know, that you get at work may not offer enough protection for your family's needs. Policy Genius gives you unbiased advice from a licensed expert support team. Now, this is super convenient, right? Because a lot of times, you know, something like life insurance, you're just going to put it off because you're like, when will I ever have time to do that? I don't even know who to talk to about it. Well, this helps you do it online. Okay, again, you're comparing options from top companies, all right? Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scattergun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Dugs, I'm in the navel, and I hear, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Dugs place on, on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them. Okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds, this app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Do you, what's the refugia of the whitetail? Like, like how far back in time... I'm trying to think of how to express this question. 
if you had a time machine and it set at like a random, it would just randomly throw you back to randomized dates. And you wanted to set a location on your time machine to maximize the chances that you would stumble into a whitetail, what would you set? Florida. Florida? For, yeah. And, and there's a lot of whitetail fossils in Florida. In fact, I brought They've one. been hanging around there a I long forgot. time. They have been. They, yeah. They've been in the Pleistocene. There's a, there's a, just a ton of, of uh, Pleistocene whitetail fossils in Florida. And actually brought you one. Oh, um, really? And so Very that's kind cool. of a, holy it's, shit. It's an epicenter. So that you can see this fossilized material, and that's just the Jim base just of handed an me a fossilized the bone base from the skull, so mm-hmm. the pedicle. Got the pedicle. Um, the antler, about inch and a half of antler, about an inch of skull, and it feels like stone. And it is stone. Yep. You know, the word pedicle comes from um, George Bubenick, famous antler researcher, George and, and George and his, his father, Anthony. And Anthony, they wrote a book in 1990 called Horns, Pronghorns, and Antlers. And it's like the Bible for antler, kind of antler science geeking out. Um, but Anthony Bubenick coined, didn't coin the phrase pedicle, but he told us how to pronounce it, pedicle. He says it rhymes with medical. But Anthony Bubenick spoke about six languages, and English was like his fifth language. And so I always think it's kind of funny that we're all taking our pronunciation of <laughs> from, medical, yeah. from this yeah. guy who nobody could understand when he spoke English. That's this great. is amazing, man. This is out of Florida? <laughs> yeah, Florida. So this deer was running around. He'd bump into mastodons now and, and then. And that's dated, that's dated Pleistocene. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Jim also uh, brought to show us a replica of a saber tooth tooth. Smilodon fatalis. His uh, canine. Mm-hmm. And Smilodon is... Uh, and this thing is 11 inches long? Yeah. Smilodon is not because they had a big smile with those big toothy... Smilodon comes from, I think it's Smeely, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's Latin for double-edged sword. Really? I'd laugh so if one of these just from. jumped out and just grabbed Phil. It would make a bike ride to work a little <laughs> more like, exciting. Just like, <laughs> you know, just killed him. I'd be like, ah, <laughs> look at that. <laughs> I would believe, too. Can you believe that, Cal? That's what I'd say. That'd be move real <laughs> slow. Move real slow. Uh, so um, Florida had a lot of whitetails. Oh, go ahead, Cal. Florida also has um, the the spring site where they got all the fossils out of, including the giant tortoise. With not familiar with that. Giant tortoises that once roamed what is now the United States, but they found. A, a tortoise shell in this spring in Florida that had a spear point in it. No, <laughs> I need now, to talk to our I need to talk to our former podcast guest who does the animal. So then nah. you start digging into the actual paper, and it's like it was laying nearby. It was laying in the shell as they brought the thing out, and they're like, uh, so. Yeah. It could be this, mm-hmm. but it very well could be this. But then every Probably, time you... it's clear evidence of ceremonial turtle slaughtering <laughs> <Yes>. practices. <laughs> exactly, it was a reli- religious totem. A religious site. There was a paleontologist in New Mexico that was knocking one of the on arrow points, knocking one of the little shoulders off, and saying that was indicative of Sandia man. And he and he wrote papers and and constructed this big because he always knocked a shoulder saying, off. But he but they they found out later he was knocking the shoulders off and saying it was diagnostic of this. 
Wow. There's some bad, yeah, there's some bad stuff. But he wasn't doing it as a greater social experiment. No. That's a bummer. Can I, can I tell people what you were musing before we started recording your observation about archaeology or is that just too harsh? No, that's fine. That's that's (laughs) fine. You you tell them yourself. The truth, yeah, truth is hard. A friend of mine always called archaeology a soft science because it just, (laughs) so much of it is just made up. They'll find a toe bone and then they'll write a paper about what the home range was and, and what the color of the fur was. And unfortunately, there's just a lot of. A lot of garbage. I was looking into archaeological evidence of uh, elk in Arizona when we were doing some Miriam's elk stuff. And, and there was a son who was a, a paleontologist and archaeologist, and his dad was too at the university. And he had 44,000 deer family bones out of the site in Arizona. And he had like 14 or so elk. And so I was really interested in those elk specimens. And I couldn't get a hold of the, the son, but I talked to the dad. And the dad says, oh, those were those are big otocolios. Those are big mule deer. Those weren't elk. He didn't know what he was talking about. Talking about his own son, yeah, in, in his paper. So there's a lot of that in there, and you just got to really be skeptical and be cautious. You can't read a paper and then just go, uh, you know, repeating it without some skepticism of thinking, thinking about it. It's when, I, when I was when I was working on my Buffalo book, um, it came up like I was. It came up where I was reading about where there were accounts of them occurring, and. There's a lot of versions of why Buffalo, New York became Buffalo, New York. But you'll often read in old books that, like, Buffalo, New York was Buffalo, New York because someone had encountered Buffalo. I thought it was the wings. Well, <laughs> n- no. There's a I – I think I get into it in the book. I can't remember if I explain it or not. bunch of different theories about how it got the name. But it wound up being that, that sometimes you'll see distribution maps for where Buffalo roamed. Bison, bison, bison roamed. And people will have it going up into New York. The, the, the range map will, will go up into New York. And it comes from, uh, people include it because two skulls came out of some campsite, some excavation of a campsite in New York. Just the skulls. And both of them uh, had cultural markings on them. And later people looked at it and thought, were they living here? Or did someone get some from someone and bring them home? Mm-hmm. The same way copper that comes out of Michigan's Upper Peninsula can be found anywhere in the Midwest <laughs> and traced back. Like people took stuff they thought stuff was cool and brought it home with them. Sure, Arizona. You know? We had parrot feathers in Arizona and all kinds of things from Central America. So there was these big trade routes. Oh, is that sure. right? And if you look in the not the last uh, Elk of North America book. I think it was the one before, or maybe it was the last. No, it was the one before the last one. And they show uh, elk distribution all the way down to Mexico City. And it's only because Montezuma had some elk. He had a menagerie. He had a menagerie. Yeah. And he had some elk in that menagerie. And and the people do the distribution map to include Mexico City. And in fact, the elk really weren't in there in in Mexico. Cortez, his his like recorders describe the, the first the first bison ever witnessed by a European um was probably in Montezuma's menagerie witnessed by Cortez expedition hmm. and I th- I think that and somehow and somehow they describe it as having come from the north yeah probably having, having come from the north the, and, and not that it lived there the mule deer was first described um from uh, the journals of uh Larray and he first described what a mule deer looked like in, in the West. And it was found out later that there was 
no such person as Charles LeRae and that his journals were entirely fabricated by someone. They don't even know who. Really? But entirely fabricated the journals, taking pieces, some of it from Lewis and Clark, some from different journals from explorers and put it together and, and made up this story about Charles LeRae who was in the West. He was captured by Sioux Indians. He was held captive for several years um, by, the, by the tribe. And during that time, he kept a journal. Because, and it was only because Western literature was really popular. This is late 1800s, I think. Western literature is really popular. And being held captive by Native American tribes was uh, like a really hot story. So this guy just fabricated this whole thing. And so you'll read even some of my early writings where we talk about Charles LeRae described the first mule deer. Oh, is that right? And it turns out it's just crap. It's just permeate, it's fabricated. Like permeated. Yeah. yeah, everybody keeps repeating it uh, over and over again. When we were talking ahead of, uh, ahead of this, um, I can't remember at some point in time, you'd mentioned that you wanted to discuss uh, Elliot Coos. But let me tee that yeah. off with, uh, <laughs> do you accept, I'm, I'm a bit like, Coos are kind of one of my favorite animals mm-hmm. by far. Mm-hmm. Definitely my probably maybe first or second favorite thing to go hunting for, maybe third. Turkeys, mule deer, and whitetail. Tur- I'm sorry, turkeys, mule deer, and Turkey. Coos deer. In my mind, depends what time of year it is, which one of those is my favorite thing to hunt. But, uh, are coos deer like? Do you accept, or, or what's the thinking? They're like a subspecies of the whitetails. They're just whitetails, and yeah, they happen to no, live somewhere else. Yeah, there's no doubt they're a subspecies that that really evolved differently because they were in the Sierra Madre of Mexico, and so they were really geographically fairly isolated from. So all in the Sierra whitetails. Madre, that's coos deer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I mean, when you get down, you get about halfway down the Sierra Madre, and then they start getting all these other subspecies names, but nobody's really done science on that at all. We've got a small whitetail throughout the highlands of Mexico, and none of them are probably any different. They're probably basically cow's deer all the way down through the Sierra Madre. You're a cow's deer man. Yeah, didn't, didn't, you, hear, didn't you hear Yanni a couple of weeks ago? You guys are I didn't na- know that you were a cow's deer man. This is the first cow's deer man we've ever had in this room. I, I had my 15 minutes of fame a couple of weeks ago, and Yanni said, there's like one guy that says cow, screw him. And I said, <laughs> that's my 15 minutes. They mentioned me. They mentioned me. Mm, cow's deer no. man. Well, here's the deal. Elliot Cows, that's how you pronounce his no, name. No, that's not what I heard. Mm-mm, you heard wrong. I heard he pronounced it Cows. Yeah, that's, you know where that comes from? Chris Denham. <laughs> Probably Chris Denham. <laughs> Chris Denham read um, something Richard Ockenfels wrote, and Richard Ockenfels writes in his annotated bibliography of Cows Whitetail, he writes, it's, it rhymes with house. And I asked, I'm friends with Rich, I've known Richard for 20 years. Yeah. I asked Richard, where'd that come from? He said, well, I talked to uh, Neil Carmody and, and, um, and I visit Neil Carmody in the nursing home in Tucson every couple of months. I've been, I've known him for 25 years. I asked Neil, where does that come from? The cows? And he says, I know we knew somebody that, um, spoke some French and he says, that's probably how it's pronounced. So that's where, that's where that cows thing came from. Completely bogus. There's no question how to pronounce his name. There's a huge question on how people want to refer to the deer. That's maybe different. I, I think that those two th- subjects have their own different. evolutionary they paths. Do. They do. Okay, but go on. You can call him whatever the hell you want. Ladies and gentlemen, if our uh, guest here says cow's deer, he's referring, of course, to coos deer. <laughs> the, <laughs> it's really sad. I, n- nowhere in, I would say, linguistical or etymological history do I know of a word where, where after learning how to pronounce it correctly, <laughs> 95% of the public... Not only refuses to, but militantly refuses. Oh, it gets people riled up. Till the up. day I die. Yeah, they get but angry. you know what? You know who gets I riled die. up the most? Cows deer people. I would call them cow. I, I call them, listen, I call them coos deer for a simple reason. 
the people that introduced me to him and that I hung out with mm-hmm. and hunted him with first, that's what they called him. I actually had Jay Scott say cows on his podcast one time when I was on it. And oh. I was like, did you just say what I thought you said? So there's also like, um, you know, there's a spirited debate around Sika, Sika. Right, Sika. Which confuses people because I think Sika blacktails. Anyhow. Yeah, Sika. Elliot Cows. Elliot Cows. Now, to put the name pronunciation to bed, Elliot Cows, when he wrote the checklist of birds in North America, he added a footnote. Well, he was an ornithologist. He was mostly an ornithologist. Yeah. About that. Yeah. He'd never killed a deer. Someone named the deer after him. So he really, really wasn't a deer guy. He was a really good ecologist. But he wrote the checklist of birds in North America, and he has a footnote where he explains how to pronounce his name. No. He does. It says C, and he says C-O-W-Z, cows. That's a lie. Not a lie. It's in black and white. Really? Okay, here's a twist. Who the though. hell makes a footnote in their book about how to pronounce their last name? It, it was a footnote on a bird species that was also cow's eye. Some, oh, some species. Ah. So he was explaining where that where that name came from, and it was he was writing the book, and he was explaining how his name was pronounced. But kind of pretentious. Okay, so you're right. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> it's cows right from Elliot Cow's yeah. mouth. You're right, but we're talking about the deer, not the dude. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about yeah. Yeah, he's right, but <laughs> so yeah. right. So say we were in that. I know, I know. And so <clears throat> say that there was someone who was who just had made huge contributions to outdoor education, entertainment, had a podcast, had a TV show, and did so much for the industry that some deer biologist wanted to name a subspecies after him. Renella deer. Odicolius hemionis renella. And then so we go in the cow's deer. You and I go in the time machine, <laughs> and we go a hundred years in the future, and we get out and we talk to some deer hunters, and they're talking about. Yeah, we're, we're all jacked because we got tags for these Renea deer. You'd be like, Renea deer. No, the, well, guy's, name, French. the guy's name was Renella. <laughs> the guy's name was Renella. And, and they'd shrug and say, I'm going to call it Renea until the day I die. You'd be like, hmm, yeah, that's kind of weird. Like, that's my deer. That's kind of weird. That was like named to honor me. And, that, and the deer was named to honor Elliot Cow. So, so, no, you know what I'd say? I'd be like, no, dude, I totally understand. <laughs> Which you, I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> As a coos deer, man, I understand. <laughs> but, but there's a twist to that story. So Elliot Cow's and Elliot Cow's father, Samuel, and his grandfather, Peter, Can you, did, on, they pronounced it cows. He was an ornithologist, not a deer guy, but did he like muse on or like, like, uh, did, did he, was he like, oh, and there's this little shitting deer running around I'm, or? I'm not sure if, well, he, he did. He wrote, um, quadrupeds of, of, or kinds of deer in Arizona. I think he wrote That's that. That's a great title so for he's a book. written about it. I, I like that word <laughs> kinds. We, we talk about subspecies and races and he wrote a paper of kinds of deer. That's a great book, man. I like that. Yeah. I'm going to do that but, whole series. Yeah. Kinds so, of. So he's written about all kinds of, you know, all the mammals and deer too, but not in detail. He wasn't really a deer person um, in detail. But there's a twist to the cow story. So he, Elliot Cows, and, and at least two generations back, um, pronounced it cows. Mm-hmm. But he says that back in France, I don't know how many generations that would be. We're talking about 1700s. He's a Frenchman. He, from, yeah, the name is French. And so his family originally came from northern France, moved to southern England. And he says in that same footnote, when, when they moved to southern England, the name was was, cha- was changed or bastardized, in, and they started pronouncing it cows. And in France, it was two syllables, couets. That's what I'm switching to for the deer. Couets. And so if people are going to argue that that's their basis for saying coos, then I want to hear them saying couets deer. That's what I'm switching to. 
That I cannot wait compromise. to get around all them like hard hitting Arizona flat brim dudes and be like <laughs> Kuwait. Yeah, I'd like to. I'm interested in these Kuwaits, dude. I like how you <laughs> held out until you found a reasonable out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I needed to find. I, I can't agree. Something contrarian. I needed to find like a way to get out of this. But Kuwaits. There, there's some people in Elliot Cowes' family back um, before him that spelled their name C O W E S instead of U in the middle. They put C-O-W-E-S oh, wow. because they were tired of people mispronouncing it. Coos, probably. I have a Cows. newspaper article w- about uh, an uncle of mine. No, my father's uncle hit a, accidentally like crashed his car into a policeman's car. An Irishman named Philip Toomey. And... Philip Toomey went home and got his pistol and came back and shot and killed my dad's uncle. I have a newspaper article about it. But in that article, my family is R I N E L L I. Uh huh. So, sure. In the article or? Yeah, in the article. Okay, and that's the only place? Yeah, my dad said he grew up with his grandma pulling that. She kept the clothes in a box and she'd pull them down and show everybody the bloody shirt with a bullet hole in it. But the article about it describes him as R I N E L L I. So he. he Perhaps right, you know, just like people. How just I'm just coming well, on the way that names morph and change and yeah, a new and like how article. like what like what pronunciation. What I mean, how that dude pronounces last name. Yeah. I don't know. Did he say Ranella or did he have some whole other way of doing it? My my family is originally from Deakton, Switzerland, in the 1700s, and two miles from Deakton, Switzerland, is Heffelfingen. Oh, Heffelfingen, Switzerland, and there's Heffelfingers back there now, and they spell it the same way, which is kind of unique because names do change when they. Switch continents and things, but still spelt that way. Uh, last thing on uh, Elliot Cowes. <laughs> Do you understand? Like I read, like he was. What was his? What was his thing about levitation? Have you he read was, that? Have I read you, that he was into levitation. But have he you was read a believer in le- levitation? No, I just read uh, that he was. I, you can I was get, probably on something stupid like his Wikipedia page, but no, I just read you, that he's like in into levitation. No, you can get the. I I bought that publication for like ninety nine cents um, online on Kindle. I don't know if it's available other places, probably other other places, but it's a short thing. It's more of a paper than a book, but they make it look like it's a book. And it's really entertaining because he, as a scientist, he's talking about, well, okay, people don't believe in levitation, but basically I, I we should hold out the idea that there's a lot of things in the natural world we don't understand and we can't explain. And future research will probably explain it. And he kind of felt that way about levitation, that we don't know what it is now. He's been totally swindled by people who are levitating in front of him. But he said, you know, we don't understand it now, but future in the future, science might uh, might unravel what that's all about. He says people don't have any problem uh, believing in, in centrifugal force or gravity. <laughs> like if you took the earth and you spun it, wouldn't people levitate because of centrifugal force? He was talking about these forces as being understood and we just don't understand that one. He said, everybody in the world uh, doesn't believe in levitation, except, he says, Christians, of course. I mean, they have no problem believing that Christ ascended into heaven through levitation. So so the Christians believe in levitation. So they're that open was, to the that idea. Was, that was, that's right. That was his, his tongue in cheek. But he talks in there about, he, he ends it kind of odd. He talks about how his wife, which he refers to as Mrs. C, in there. And, and so those because he can't pronounce, he doesn't know how to pronounce probably, her name. Probably, yeah, he just he gave up on that. So he talks about his wife and a friend and this big oak table, and they put their hands on the table and they tried to move it, and the table started bumping and moving by itself. And he was totally convinced. There you go. That they were doing this, and they pulled away from the table, and the table kept bumping and and being agitated with nobody touching it. 
And then at the end of that kind of bizarre story, maybe he was getting senile at the end of his career. At the end of that story, he says, and therein lies my theory of telekinetic levitation. Yeah, I buy it. And he just adds it. No, I'm totally <laughs> convinced now, it. man. So, it's an interesting read. It's pretty entertaining. It's pretty short. Uh, this, is a, this is a question that cannot be answered to my satisfaction. Um, I'm going to phrase it in an annoying way. <laughs> Why do deer lose their antlers? Evolutionarily, or how does it happen when it happened? Why do they evolutionarily? Why, why shed their antlers? Yeah, I, I say it's annoying because you can't go like, I, we don't know why. You, we could speculate about there, things that may have, right. right? There's some good reasons to lose antlers. You break a tine, you got a new set next year. Yeah, That's but you break reason. your horn, you don't get a new set. No, you don't, but <clears throat> they're not going to break as much as tines, though. You know, you'll broom the tips off and get sinusitis and lose But that, horn. would that really drive? No, not alone, I don't think. I'm not alone. But, you know, you think if you're overwintering, and you're trying to make it through winter on harsh winter range and through deep snow. It'd be nice not to have, especially a moose, those big bones on your head. I mean, there'd be an advantage to to losing those during the winter time. Yeah, but you can't beat the hell out of stuff trying to kill you. No. Tell you what the answer is, probably. Oh. Is. Let's nut- go. Nutritional sing- signaling. And you've heard about that where it, it gives you and it gives the animal an annual expression of its physical condition and its fitness for females to select the animals that are able to acquire the most resources, grow the biggest antlers because they're, they're luxury organs. They, they, they grow after the body has been satisfied, the nutrition. Yeah, it's like the difference so, between driving a car or having a picture of a sweet car you used to have. <laughs> it sounds like a personal story. Okay. But here you've got an annual expression of, of uh, how fit you are. And it's up to the minute, and and getting bigger every year. You don't, as a yearling yearling moose, you don't want to grow this gigantic fifty inch um, set of antlers. But here annually, as your body grows and as you get no, more nutrition and, and maybe become dominant, you can you can express that and say, "Look, ladies, look at look at I got." Yeah, here. but horned. Here's the problem with that: horned animals have the same luxury; they just keep growing, right? But there's sometimes where it's like, not like a two year old like, bighorn. Is going to wind up having the biggest horns ever. It's like a big ass horned bighorn is old. Mm-hmm. They, you know, cervids, the deer family evolved in Asia. Bovids evolved, don't know where, probably Europe someplace. And so the, these animals get on these different evolutionary tracks and you get, That's a good you point. get characteristics that just develop independently. And, and, and now looking at them now, they may not make sense when you compare them. Yeah, I don't like what you're saying. But they just yeah. had, they just had different um, pathways. There's a Procolius in, in Asia, some fossils. We're looking at a set of fossils. It looks like, at least that was the conclusion, some of them shed their antlers every year and some of them didn't in, huh. in that form. Really? And so that's thought of as maybe being the root of the cervid hmm. family, of the deer family. Got you. That's right at the point where animals have these things on their heads and then they're dropping off every year or, or not dropping off every year. We had a really, really neat uh, kind of expression of the the you know health of the animal being represented in in the antlers. Um, Sam Bates, uh, a producer here at Meat Eater, she uh, shot her first first mule deer buck, and it was a really neat buck. And everything about it, from my look at the deer, was like, boy, this is a mature deer. The antlers aren't that big, and they're kind of an interesting 
formation and uh, you could have laid a, you know, a two-year-old deer next to this probably three or four-year-old deer and the two-year-old deer would have had bigger antlers. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when he started dressing the deer, the deer had been shot the year before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. There's also leg injuries. Front leg injuries will produce a non-typical point on the same side as the front leg injury. Rear leg injuries. You say that like produce always. The opposite. No, not always, but, but. Oh, you know, I knew, pretty, I thought it was always really, opposite. I didn't know it was front leg. Front leg is the same side. It's called a contralateral effect. And, and so the rear leg or left rear leg will produce a. Um, a messed up antler on the on the right side the next year. So a lot of theories are like some kind of counterbalancing, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Some people some say, well, the deer's probably back there licking his injury and he's he's damaging that opposite side antler. But I think it's more neurological. I think it's the way the right brain uh, manages the left side of the body and and vice versa. I think it's something with that damage to the left side of the rear leg is neurologically affecting the other side. Um. Okay, so tell me why they, how they lose their antlers. What's going on? One minute you're kicking mm-hmm. ass, you got some antlers, you're fighting. Yeah, I mean you can pick and up all the of a sudden animal. They fall off. You can pick up the animal by the by you the. You drag them around by it, and then and then the the uh, after the breeding season, testosterone levels, mostly testosterone, a lot of other hormones. There's this big orchestra of hormones rising and falling throughout the year in a in a deer, but really testosterone's a driver. And, and after the breeding season, testosterone levels plummet, and it's that that plummeting of testosterone. There's this, this certain layer of bone cells between the, the temporary antler material and the top of the pedicle that's called osteoclasts, and they're real sensitive to uh, hormonal changes. And that okay. drop in testosterone erodes those osteoclasts, and antlers just fall off. They must be some strong sons of bitches, though. Yeah, right. Think, think about Because you can hit, like, you've seen deer, like, y- you could hit a deer on the antler sometimes. And break the skull. And it busts the skull in half. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yep. But then a drop in testosterone, a hormonal shift will cause whatever that glue it just is. falls off. Yeah. And it doesn't take that long. I mean, he's kicking ass in November, then a couple <laughs> months later, his antler falls off. <coughs> yep, and, and uh, growing new ones. <clears throat> and a couple months prior to November, you could squeeze the tip of those antlers off yeah. with your bare hands. Get blood on your hands. Yeah, I've talked yep. to a number of guys who have gone up. I don't remember the circumstances, but going up and like grabbed a deer to drag it and had the antler come off in their hand. <coughs> that like can it was, happen. It was happening. They'll you know? shed antlers quicker if they're uh, nutritionally depraved or if they get sick or something. No, really. It'll cause that. It messes, it just kind of messes with their hormone system and oh. they may lose their, the testosterone may go down quicker just because they're kind of sick. What do you think it takes? Um, you know, people talk about areas of big bucks and. You know, when I was, like, coming up as a young man, everybody was excited about the genetics. Mm-hmm. That place got great genetics, right? <clears throat> right. You still hear and that it, all the time. Yeah, and then we talked to some guys you've done some work with, Matt Coffin and and um, his colleague. Uh, Kevin, Kevin Monteith. Kevin Monteith. Yeah, he looks at nutrition. Mm-hmm. And they've done studies of taking deer from supposedly shitty genetic areas yeah. or supposedly stupendous genetic areas. Yeah, that changing, was Kevin's work. Changing their diet to match diet. Of deer from areas that are contradictory to that, meaning like mm-hmm. you take a deer from an area that supposedly has shitty genetics and put it on the same diet as a deer from an area that supposedly has supposedly. great genetics, and lo and behold, they went up looking exactly the same. Yep, yep. And he got into, and we discussed like not only is it that animal's nutrition, but it's 
the nutrition of its mother, mother when she becomes pregnant. Right. And even, like his aunt, and, like whether he's going to be a stomp or buck could be decided by the condition of his mother when she becomes pregnant. It could, yeah, it can be decided or by influence. the condition of his mother right before she becomes pregnant, the condition she's in when she becomes pregnant. Epigenetics, it's probably epigenetic. It's a maternal effect is, is what Kevin researched and talked about. Probably there's a thing called epigenetics that is kind of a new field we're finding some, not we, but there's some amazing things where an animal has genetics and passes on that genetic code. And we always thought of it like, Gregor Mendel, Mendelian genetics was just like whatever genes you had, that's what got expressed in the young. We're finding out that environmental influences like nutrition can actually switch genes on and off. So, so the genetic code doesn't change because it can't change. Got but you. which genes get expressed and turned on and off can change depending on if if you've got uh, good nutrition or poor nutrition. And some really amazing things where it looks like it's actually genetic effects, but it's the genes are the same. There's just more different ones are active. Really amazing, amazing stuff. Certainly not my expertise, but cool stuff. And that's probably what's behind this maternal effect where the condition of the female can can actually affect the antlers of her male offspring when they're mature. Because it's certain it's things are kick, Yeah, about. it's got enough enough gas for certain things to kick in. Or mm-hmm. it, it turns on, it's a methylation process. And I only sound that to, to sound smart because I don't know anything about the methylation process. But that's the, the vehicle um, in, in the DNA transcription that turned genes on and off. And that's what's at the heart of that. If you took, what's your theory on this and why hasn't someone done it yet? Get yourself a couple of coos deer, bring them up to Iowa. What happens to them? Do they just die because they don't like it because it's too damn <clears throat> cold? No, they'd get bigger. They would get bigger. I, nobody's done it. Um, why that, not? That I know of. Because CWD, you don't want to be moving animals around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't. You know, we had a we had a conversation with someone at um, someone who does some work with Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. It was talking about with CWD, just like the whole thing of like moving elk. It's just done, man. Yeah, but do we need to move elk much? I mean, we're still. I doing think we some need to move them all over the damn place. <laughs> we're only now. It's unfinished work, man. Yeah, but that's a that's a concern. Well, state you know, Idaho CWD. had to move uh, the <laughs> the habituated elk. Out of the state, and they had to, that uh, that lucky elk that somebody chose to feed is now at the veterinary mm. research station in oh, I read Texas. That. Oh, that one, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. living um, his full full life. So, so you think they'd so get bigger? They would get bigger. Yeah, I don't. You know, they're would they stop being the gray ghost? I don't. Uh, good question. What their pelage would do? Whether you get like a rusty red coat in the summer, which we normally don't get. But I don't. They're they're they've been so separated, and and they're good legitimate subspecies. They're smaller. We did some um, genetic work, Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young paid for some genetic work that I orchestrated with some real geneticists where we found a genetic marker that will identify a cow's white-tailed deer from other white-tailed deer. So you could bring me a rack of skull plate and we could test that and tell whether it's a cow's white-tailed or not. And Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young are using that to keep their record books clean now. Oh. If someone enters the new world record cow's white-tail and it, it's a skull plate that grandpa had in the attic and... Grandpa said he shot it south of Tucson. You'd be able to ver- back. And this has happened. And we do the genetic tests. And Grandpas don't lie. Not. Yeah. Family stories sometimes get <laughs> twisted and changed. And so we've done that. And we've found some of these animals are not cow's whitetail. And so they're not. They can't be included. Oh, so. that's a bummer, man. <laughs> Someone gets <laughs> well, confused about the buck grandpa shot in Alberta and the buck he yeah. shot in Arizona. <laughs> I know. That's what it is. Uh we had a thing where we were going. You wanted to bring up something about Neanderthals. Why? Yeah, I did. 
I, I've sent you a bunch of Neanderthal papers just because I now, think— are you, like, are you interested? I think it's just you and I are in the same boat. We're interested spectators in, in what the scientists are doing. My, know, the, reason I'm, I'd be, uh, the reason I'm a Neanderthal man is uh, into them is because in my life, they have gone from these Roots. crude— Right, and then every, these crude, like you know, you know, like beating their lady over the head with a rock and dragging her home, kind of thing, mm-hmm. to being just increasingly complex and sophisticated. And it's oh, they were free divers. Yeah, they built a raft. <laughs> now they it's built, like, yeah. yeah, they were avid free divers. Yeah. They had art. They liked to carve things. I was telling, I was trying to get Cal to put a thing in Cal's Week in Review where uh, I had a whole joke crafted up for Cal, but he wouldn't use it. <laughs> I, do think I was waiting for the story. I'm waiting for the story to come out where it was revealed that Neanderthals had laptops. <laughs> It'll happen because every story about Neanderthals now is like, oh, they were just great, nice people, I nice think we, smart people. The Neanderthals. Yeah, and you can start <laughs> testing this out by every time you see somebody eating oysters, you stare at them. And you go, you Neanderthal. <laughs> well, they're two percent of our genome. Well, I'm a little bit. Well, do you, have you done you 23 and me? No, I did the other one. I'm a little less than less than average on Neanderthal. Mm. Rogan, mm-hmm. I had a good laugh. Uh, Joe Rogan, he's like running heavy. There. He's running heavy. <laughs> not, how, <laughs> does that, how does that not surprise <laughs> me? It's the sagittal crest and the eyebrows, I think. The brow ridges. Yeah, he's running real heavy, he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that, that miniature hominid that they found in um, Flores Island? Yeah. Um, it was only Florencia. three feet tall. Yeah, Flores. Florensis, I think I'm missing a syllable, but three feet tall uh, at maturity, they're running on almost all Neanderthal and Denisovan genes or, mm-hmm. or, or genetics. I mean, they come from that Neanderthal stock, not from modern human stock. Yeah, at one spot in time, you could have walked, you could have wandered around Southern Europe, Mediterranean mm-hmm. area, and just like you could wander around. Um, here and be like, oh, there's a black-tailed deer. Oh, there's a mule deer. There's yep. a white tail. There's a coos deer. What, how do these all fit together? You could have roamed the land and run into like different kinds of different humans. folks. Yeah, different kind of folks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who and did then, some yeah. amount of lovemaking. Mm-hmm. Multiple times, a paper just came out with the Neanderthal showing that it wasn't just one kind of unique population where they interbred and it spread out from there, but it was a real complex. Over a long period of time, thousands and thousands, probably hundreds of thousands, well, at least tens of thousands of years, a whole bunch of different interbreeding events between and that idea is and really messing with people. Yeah, Certain people I don't know really if I've been like, into it or not into it. People so like people coming from one spot. Would you like try to pick up other species? <laughs> <laughs> I, you're saying could as if it's past tense. I feel like uh, you're you're trying to call me out here. I. <laughs> Probably, right? Like back in the day, yeah. you'd have been like, I'm going to go check out that other camp. Sure. Uh-huh. What are those anyway? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think so. Gonna, I'm going to bring uh, some cookies over there. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we're speaking past tense, <laughs> hypothetically, <laughs> back then. Yeah, the people was with it, all the oysters and mussels and yeah. Yeah, doing the free diving. Yeah, you see like a pretty good crew. Kind of small. Was <laughs> it the was it the unattractive modern humans though that were more likely to breed with the Neanderthals? I would love to know, man. <laughs> and I'd like to know like when they sat around talking or they talking about how great you know. Like was it like if you were Crow Magnon or, you know, and you hooked up with a Neanderthal, was it like did you, you try to like keep yeah. quiet about it? Right? <laughs> Were you like, wow, you know, or did you brag it up? 
<laughs> I would love to know. Time yep. machine. I got a long list of time machine uh, yeah. activities that mm-hmm. I'll be engaging in someday. Um, yeah. Did you have any burning observation about them? No, I just... Uh, I, you just uh, like them. I, I like that the H is back in the name. You know, it was Neanderthal, and then for a period of time, Tall. someone said Neanderthal. Because it's, it's the cow's coos deal. I know, it's exactly. It's the damn valley in Germany. <laughs> yep, yep. So I don't give was. a shit what they call their valley. But it's a Neanderthal the, man. But now all the papers have the H back in, so that was good, because it was kind of awkward to say Neanderthal. I never know what to do in those circumstances, man. Like, how when to switch. I've switched to pronghorn, trying to switch. Oh, instead of I even label my meat pronghorn now. It confuses what? people. Yeah, you don't believe me? No way, really? You go look. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've given it to people, and they've registered confusion. Really? That is so funny. You don't label your packages pronghorn? I do not. They don't. Antilocapra Americana. <laughs> 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 I go through yeah. a lot of Sharpies. You know, there was 18, 18 different types of primitive Antilocapra pronghorn family no. in North America. 18 million years ago. For 18 million years, we had 18 different types of pronghorn. Some had corkscrew horn cores. Some had three horn cores on both sides, six total Whoa. horn cores. Really? A lot of them had two on each side. I wrote a, um, a field guide. Of, it's called a bestiary of ancestral antilocaprids. And it's illustration. You wrote that? <laughs> yeah, with some other people. You're writing machine, man. <laughs> well, that's interesting stuff. Yeah. 18 different kinds of pronghorn, and they all went extinct, except for the American pronghorn that we have. And so we had illustrations that Randy Babb uh, did illustrations of each one of those uh, skulls. And then I wrote a paragraph, which was all, anything we knew about it. And we had a map of where the fossils had been found. So it was like a little field guide. Of How far east are they running? Florida. Yeah, Florida. Oh, there's different mm-hmm. kinds all the way yep. over there. Yep. If you yep. would have named it yep. Kinds of Antilocapra. I should have. Kinds of Antilocapra. <laughs> you would have been yep. on the same shelf. Yep. You know, whenever tiny. I start getting depressed about uh, all the animals that aren't around anymore, I always, to, to help not be depressed... I remind myself that the largest animal to ever exist, larger than the biggest of Brontosaurus or Argentosaurus, the biggest animal to ever have ever existed on Earth is alive right now. It's still here, right. The blue whale. We're in the good old days. (laughs) The biggest animal ever is here right now. The good old days of megafauna. We've got them now. Yeah. (laughs) Because you get to looking at my kids like dinosaur books. And yet, and I get to look at that, I'm like, man, kind of a little jealous yeah. about that. Oh, so jealous. So I just lay eyes and get your brain wrapped around the scale. Mm-hmm. I, I want I want it. We badly. talk a lot about whether they'd have been good eating or not. <laughs> <laughs> one of my kids thinks they would have been, and one of them thinks they wouldn't have been very good eating. Yeah, I don't know. Reptile-like. <laughs> uh, okay, moving on. This is a little bit. I want to talk about, like, you're really mixed up in the wolf world. Mm-hmm. I am. Yeah. I, I was put on the Mexican wolf recovery team in December of 2010 and was on it for two years, resigned in December of 2012. Um, and with my resignation letter, added a, a about a 14-page report citing all of the scientific and process flaws that were that, that I saw in the writing of what was supposed to be the draft recovery plan at that time. That's what we were put together for. A couple of months later, the, the remainder of the team um, went ahead and submitted a report. It had so many flaws, as I pointed out, Fish and Wildlife Service couldn't do anything with it. They couldn't They couldn't make that their, their draft plan. Um, they just, stakeholders weren't involved. State agencies were just seen as uh, maybe stakeholders we'll, we'll talk to later. Um, and it went nowhere. So back way up, though, like, what's the problem? Like, what happened? 
We used to have. I mean, the wolves were like continue. They had them in Alaska. Mm-hmm. There was no like place without them. They just ran all right. the way down and into Mexico. People, and people mistakenly re- just think about the Mexican wolf as um, just the the southern part of a blending of different wolf sizes and wolf subspecies throughout the continent. We used to have uh, twenty four wolf subspecies in in North America, and, and Ron Nowak boiled that down to five that seemed ecologically different in different areas. What were those? Um, Arctic. Well, there was a um, Occidentalis, which is a big Canadian wolf in, in Alaska, and then Nublis, which is mid-continent, most of the United States, and then um, Bailey which is the Mexican wolf, and then there was the um, Arctic wolf, and I can't remember what the other one was. And the Arctic wolves, they mm-hmm. run white a fair bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, yep. And so and he, the Canadian he high Ar- down, they're in the Canadian high Arctic. Yep, yeah. Ellesmere Island and that yeah. sort of thing. And so, so these are kind of groups of wolves that it kind of makes sense. The Mexican wolf is not just the the southern tip of a big wolf distribution that blended um, freely with Nublus, the other wolf to the north. The Mexican wolf evolved in the Sierra Madre, like we were talking about the whitetails, and that's another reason Mexican wolves are physically different. They're genetically different. They're the most genetically different wolf subspecies when they look at genetics. But they weren't just in Mexico. In they were only in Mexico and the Sky Islands in southern Arizona and, and southwestern New Mexico. That was the historical range of the Mexican wolf. Some of those Mexican so kind of like wolves, almost overlaps with coos deer, cows, right? And and goose turkey, deer. and, and goose turkey, and so and and evolutionary ecologists will talk about subspecies just have more support when there's a whole bunch of other unrelated animals that have that same distribution. It just makes sense that there are some ecological forces that allowed those animals of different types to to evolve a little bit differently as a subspecies. And yeah, no, it's interesting. Like in, in that same Madre. range, you have this like very different type of turkey, M- this quail. very different type of deer, mm-hmm. very different yep. type of quail. And yeah. if you look at, at ecological zones, plants in the plant community, that, that whole um, Madre and Oak Woodland, they call it, that the Sierra Madre is, is typical of, is different than the Mogollon Rim in northern Arizona, northern New Mexico. So it all makes sense that, and, and all of the, about 20 different mammalogists and ecologists subscribe ascribe the Mexican wolf historical range like that. Southern Arizona, southern New Mexico, and all of the Sierra Madre. Now, some of the Mexican wolves' skull measurements have, have shown that some of the Mexican wolves would disperse up into the Mogollon Rim like you'd expect to. The Mogollon Rim central Arizona and the Gila National Forest in, in central New Mexico. So some of the Mexican wolves dispersed up there. Those wolves in northern Arizona and northern New Mexico were, were measurably larger. The skull measurements, everything were larger, and they some of those would disperse down the Mogollon Rim. If you look at the um, like Google Earth and you just zoom out, you see the Sierra Madre is this big green patch where the Mexican wolf was, and then the Southern Rockies is another huge green patch, and in between there, there's this Gila National Forest Mogollon Rim with non-wolf habitat to the north of it and non-wolf habitat to the south of it. So Mexican wolves dispersed up, bigger wolves, Nubilis dispersed south, and those wolves. From skull measurements, those wolves in the central Arizona, New Mexico, are intermediate in size. Actually, the the males group better with Mexican wolves down there, and the females group with the northern wolves. Okay. An indication that they were intermediate between those two forms. So we did have some geographic separation, which accounts for the genetic differences, the physical differences in Mexican wolves. They're not just um, some subspecies that's blending in with all the other subspecies. There's some reasons why they're geographically and, and all those other reasons why they're different. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. 
I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on Onyx, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them. Okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work. Try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription. And you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Give me the pros and cons as much as you're comfortable. Like, what are the pros and cons with trying to bring them back? Uh, 
I, I think they, I mean, Mexican wolves were a native wildlife species um, in the Southwest. And I think if, if we as hunters are going to thump our chest and talk about elk bringing elk back and bringing uh, turkeys back and all these species that we call unendangered, we can't stop at the, the predators. I mean, I just think it makes sense. We just need to, they have a place in the, in the Southwest and, and we need to be working to bring them back. Most of the public thinks wolves are pretty cool. They want to see wolves back. And so as hunters, do we really want to position ourselves on the other side of the table from them and say, no, we don't want to bring wolves back because um, they eat elk and we want to hunt elk. It might impact our elk hunting. So there's some real challenges with bringing wolves back, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We, we need to have programs to work with the livestock industry to, to make sure those operators, and it's usually only a few operators that are uh, impacted heavily, but those that are impacted heavily, we should have programs to help them out. We can't just say, well, you're a grazing on public land and we're going to bring wolves back and we don't care about what happens to you. We need to work with them or it's not going to work at all. And as far as uh, big game populations, you when where we have wolves, we have some hot spots where wolves have impacted elk populations. And we need to have management flexibility to do something about that when that happens. Predators have to be managed just like we manage prey. But in a, in a, a lot of areas, wolves are back on the landscape and they're not heavily impacting elk populations. And so I just think we need to make room for, for wolves on the, on the landscape. They belong here. You know, you've been involved in state wildlife for your career. There's a lot of tension between, it seems there's a lot of, not seems, I mean, there, there is. There's a lot of tension between federal wildlife management decisions and state wildlife management decisions. Um, do you think it's fair to say, just looking back at, at American history, it's fair to say that if there was no federal oversight of endangered species and there was no federal wildlife involvement, it would be fair to say that it wouldn't have happened. There, we wouldn't have done any re, we wouldn't have done any active reintroduction efforts that would have been at to this point in time that would have been spawned by the states. You're talking about wolves, wolves specifically. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's the, something that's been like for better or worse. The state it's and federal top partnership. Down. Mm-hmm. And and when I talk poorly about the, the when I was on the Mexican wolf recovery team and that effort, we reinitiated that in 2015 and in December 2015. And Fish and Wildlife Service did it completely different. Fish and Wildlife Service invited state agency people to the table in a series of workshops to develop um, a, a recovery plan that they would they would then write. And that was a whole different process because we had a neutral facilitator who was in charge of a population viability analysis instead of in, – in past efforts, it's been some – some academics that are very advocacy-oriented, very protectionist-oriented, and they were in charge of writing the recovery plan, which didn't work repeatedly. This, the recovery team that I was on was the fourth recovery team to try to write a, a revision of the Mexican Wolf Recovery Plan. There was one written in 82. It wasn't adequate. It didn't have recovery criteria, and everybody agreed it needed to be rewritten. They kept failing because you can't get a handful of academics with a real protectionist kind of uh, attitude together and have them write a Mexican wolf recovery plan. Explain a protectionist attitude. Not ever wanting a wolf to die at the hands of man, no yeah. matter what. I mean, just like we want to craft some recovery criteria that will make it nearly impossible for them to ever be delisted and leave the protection of the federal government, which is not what the Endangered Species Act is. Endangered Species Act is is that we're supposed to, it's like an emergency room. 
someone just ready to, or almost close to dying, you bring them in the emergency room and you just get them well enough so that they're not going to die. And then you hand them over to, um, you put them in the hospital bed and you put them in the hospital and then you monitor them and then you improve their health. Endangered Species Act is supposed to be like that with species where we're just ready to lose them. We do everything we can to save them. We get them up to a certain level where we're comfortable that they're not no longer in danger of extinction. And then we pass them off to the state agencies and they manage them like all the other carnivores they manage. Yeah, I've often joked that in, in some with some species, it's become the my favorite animal protection act. It is. It absolutely is. And that does such a disservice to the 2,000 other species that are listed on the Endangered Species Act. We've got species that legitimately are going to blink out and we're going to lose. And we've got 4,000 wolves in the in the, the Western Great Lakes. And we've got people writing scientific papers and filing lawsuits saying they're still in danger of extinction. And we've got 1,500 in the Northern Rockies that are delisted. We've got 65,000 in Alaska and Canada, 110,000 wolves worldwide. And, and we can't delist the wolves in the 4,000 wolves in the... Great Lakes region, when the recovery criteria was about 1,500 wolves. And, we got 4,000. Oh, was it really 1,500? 1,500 wolves. And, and we've got 4,000, and people are still suing, saying they're still in danger of extinction. And we can't do that. We, we, need, to, we need to work together on the other 2,000 species that need our help, or they're legitimately going to disappear from the earth. Jim, what, what do you say to, and I'm sure you've heard this argument, because I, I have many times, is, well, there's a value in having this animal on the endangered species list because it brings attention to the endangered species. <laughs> Tell you it's going to bring is that, a marketing is that, is that tool. Pro, is that provision written into the Endangered Species Act? Yeah. Oh, no, The, the last part of it says, oh, and. <laughs> but you've heard of this, right? It's and like, well, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with this argument, but I mean, at some point, doesn't it kind of matter what the act says? Oh, God, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's like, well, you know, nobody's going to care about the whatever snail or butterfly if we don't have the grizzly bear. Yeah, it's going to. No, I, people... I haven't heard. I, that doesn't even kind of surprise me, but I haven't heard that. <laughs> This, if if this is the kind of thing that's going to going to ruin the Endangered Species Act, it's going to destroy the Endangered Species Act. Some of these people pushing and pushing and pushing at these ridiculous notions that we need to still have federal protection on on a species like wolf is just going to fuel the fire, and and we'll have the Endangered Species Act completely renovated. Oh, it's already happening. People get like some state agencies get so frustrated. And certain, you know, livestock groups, whatever, get so frustrated with the conversations around grizzly bears and wolves that when they hear, it's like what happened, like, it's like kind of like the level of damage that happened to the ESA around the spotted owl. It's like you turn these animals into something where the animal becomes symbolic of a kind of foot dragging. And then the act becomes that it's just like a thing used to wield power about grizzly bear management. And people just get pissed. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, that's not going to end well. Not going to end well. We need to get these species up so they're no longer in danger of extinction, which is what the act is, and then pass them off to the state agencies. And and Ed Bangs led the wolf recovery in the Northern Rockies. He's Fish and Wildlife Service, a quote-unquote fed. He told everybody the entire time, he says, our goal is to get these up above the recovery criteria that everybody agreed on and pass it off to the states. They do a great job managing wildlife, and that's what my goal is to recover in the Northern Rockies. I, that, that's the thing, too, that happens that, that is troublesome is this, uh, this thing that it's the feds. Listen, it, it's the feds 
Mm-hmm. They right. keep proposing it that wolves this. get delisted in the Great Lakes. Right. It's the feds that propose the grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. But people were like, oh, the feds. I'm like, yeah. the, the feds the, are the ones saying they want to delist. They're the ones that put them up for delisting. And, and they get sued, and they're not allowed to because of lawsuits. Yeah, right? it's like a handful of like, you know, it's anti-hunting groups that kind of masquerade as environmental groups. Or that, are, that do both, mm-hmm. that serve both functions. What, what yeah. is the most hurtful uh, when you go to some of these... Uh, fish and wildlife meetings and, and you have, you see this argument being played out before you is, is they're trying to kill them all. Yeah. And right. State agencies will just kill them all and they'll be on the endangered species. Yes. And, and it's, you know, they don't believe in like, well, listen, we have this mandate that says, this is what we are supposed to do. And we just spent a shitload of money yes. to get them off the list. And I yeah. just, I right. want to say, how familiar are you with how we got rid of wolves in the first place and that time frame. Right. I'm like, if people were trying to kill wolves now, they would be gone. They would mm-hmm. be gone, gone. Because we did it very, very well in a time without mm-hmm. satellites, without GPS, without two-way communication. Like, we just use a little bit of poison. Yeah. Yeah. And what what a lot of uh, pro-wolf groups, and it sounds funny because I'm pro-wolf too, but but a lot a lot of the protectionist groups won't acknowledge is that the, the contributions of sportsmen through the decades have brought back the prey base in, in huge numbers that allows us to recover wolves. It's not just a, a better kind of conservation ethic that the, the population has, which is true. It's the prey base. We couldn't do it if, if we didn't have all of this prey. Jim, talk a little bit about your article uh, where you, the article you wrote where you talk about it, the public's enthusiasm for like trophic cascades that, Trophic cascades also becomes like everybody's favorite word. Yeah. Favorite phrase. That's it's another thing like trophy hunting that that far outpaced the science behind it. So you want me to explain trophic cascades? We need to Yes. Yeah. Do okay. that and then talk about the you know, okay. when everybody's like all hopped up on this the idea wonderful. that all it takes is a couple wolves and their their rivers run clear again yep. and Yep. So trophic cascades just just basically a trophic level in, in ecology is like the the vegetation's one trophic level. And then you may have elk representing the second trophic level above that, elk eating uh, the vegetation. And then you have a third trophic level which might be wolves which uh, eat the the elk. And so you have these three trophic levels and the idea of trophic cascades is that if you've got a situation where you've got elk really impacting overpopulated elk impacting the vegetation and you've got too many elk you bring in wolves on that third trophic level. Wolves impact the elk in such a way that, that it, relax, it relaxes the grazing pressure on the, the vegetation, and you have more vegetation, and you have this recovery of vegetation. So the idea is adding wolves to that system cascades this effect through the trophic levels, and where we have actually the addition of wolves affecting how much vegetation there is. So that's basically trophic cascades. So in, in Yellowstone, they put wolves in in 95. They put 14 wolves one year and 17 the next. And that wolf population grew, but that was 1995. Can I interrupt you to use a quote from that era? Yeah. Um, it was in your article. Where is that quote? Oh, around someone described Yellowstone as yeah. 3,400 square miles of paradise <laughs> Surrounded by reality, <laughs> that was Ed, that was Ed, that was Ed Banks, who oh, I just okay. mentioned. Right, yeah. So he's he's the leader of the wolf recovery in the Rocky Mountains. Very pragmatic, um, awesome guy, and and so everybody's talking about what's happening in Yellowstone and getting all excited about whatever's happening in Yellowstone. That's what's going to happen everywhere when we put wolves everywhere. But Yellowstone's a, a whole different deal, and and so that's where he said that paradise pause 
surrounded by reality. And that's so true because what happened in Yellowstone, no matter what happened in Yellowstone, it can't be replicated on, on a working landscape with people trying to make a living and working on that landscape. That's not Yellowstone everywhere. So, so the Trophy Cascades in, in Yellowstone released the wolves in 95. Already five years later, some scientists went in there and they measured aspen growth in the northern range. And they, they concluded that aspen growth was responding. And since wolves really hadn't impacted the number of elk yet, that they, they surmised or they theorized that wolves were just chasing elk out of areas where wolf would, were, wolves were chasing elk where the elk would camp out and, and feed in riparian areas and places. So this scaring elk around by the wolves was distributing the grazing pressure and causing uh, a, a response in the aspen. And that, that just kind of speculative paper um, was just like the trophy hunting thing. It lit a fuse on, on the um, popular media. And everybody started talking about how the wolf was the savior of the environment. All we did was add wolves, and now we have vegetation responding. We have butterflies coming back. We have bees coming back. We have songbirds. We have beavers coming back to Yellowstone. We have vegetation responding and, and created this narrative based on just a little bit of uh, measurement of, of aspen in some riparian areas, and the popular media went crazy. They it captured the story. imagination. They love that story. Can you imagine now, not only do we do we just want to put wolves back on the landscape, but now we have to put wolves on the landscape to renovate all of this degraded ecosystem, and it's all we need is to add wolves. So, Can you imagine it, if they had opened up um, hunting in Yellowstone? It would have done the same thing. And they thing. saw corresponding... <laughs> Yeah. Growth in Aspens. Yeah. What would the news cycle have been? Yeah, do you think the news would be <laughs> championing how hunters have saved like the, the environment? Trophic cascade. Right. Anything can 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 precipitate a trophic cascade like that. And so so this firestorm of popular media and then a YouTube video that just about everybody has seen. It's got 40 million views that some British producer um with kind of a David Attenborough kind of narrative. That's all it takes, man. You yeah, put a you put a, British a you put an old Brit like, you know, a, a dude mm -hmm. from a country where they kind of like got rid of nature. Yep. You put one of those guys at the helm of a nature video and people are like, I buy it. Uh, yep. I buy it. And, and that's what happened. He starts out the video saying, in the deer, and they show these elk running. It says, in the deer, get scared out of. And so it's full of errors, but it's got 40 million views. And you talk to anyone on the street. A thousand about, people sent me that video. Oh, I bet. I mm -hmm. bet. And anybody on the street will, when you ask them about Yellowstone and wolves, say, oh, that, in the title of the the video was uh, when wolves change rivers and it was about them having such a strong ecological effect in the Yellowstone ecosystem that river courses were changing and vegetation was coming back. The problem with that whole story is that it's not just wolves. They released the, the wolves in 95. Shortly after that, they had a hundred year drought, the worst drought in a hundred years. They had a couple of years in that next decade with, with heavy snows uh, at that time that, that knocked uh, elk recruitment back. Grizzly bear populations increased so much that they documented three times the elk, the calf elk predation by grizzly bears than, than before we had wolves. There was hydrological changes in, in Yellowstone. We had the fires in 1988, huge changes there. Moose populations were dropping, cougar populations were coming up. All this Beaver stuff was, reintroductions. Right. See, <laughs> see, you hear. Very nearby. Yes, in the Gallatin. Yeah. So you hear that the beaver. And they made the beaver. Back. They made that whole uh, Upper Madison and Gallatin beaver recovery areas. Mm -hmm. So the the wolves didn't bring the beavers back. Biologists did in crates, um, and released them. And the beavers coming coming upstream and damming is part of the hydrological changes. 
um, in that in that ecosystem that that was really caused by the beavers. But the beavers don't have a paparazzi following them and and championing everything that they do. And so the beavers didn't get any credit for. So they got their, me following them. <laughs> no, that's right. That's but right. With so, conna bears. It's so funny though, because you're like, well, yeah, just add wolves, just add wolves, and really mm-hmm. what we're talking about, whether it's a beaver or a wolf, is heavy, heavy-handed management. Mm-hmm. And and also we we were killing cow elk off of the park in the wintertime in hunts as a way to try to trim the herds. That's what we do. We kill the females. And those uh, cow tags were probably held a little longer than we thought as the elk population was going down. So there's a storm of things that caused the elk population to go from 19,000 down to less than 4,000. And some people want to pin all that on the wolf. And the, the wolf did all that. And it's just such a, a simplistic thing that happened. But, but a lot of research has come on now. Matt Kaufman, who you had on the show, uh, published a paper in 2010 where he did a more robust, more widespread, more scientific uh, analysis of, of Aspen in that same area in the northern range and, and showed that Aspen wasn't recovering, actually. Oh, really? And even despite a 60% decline in the elk population. So at that point, it wasn't just a behavioral thing. We've got 60% decline in the elk and it still can't document an Aspen recovery. And so it's a really complicated thing with a whole bunch of uh, factors feeding into it. And to sit back and say wolves changed Yellowstone and, and renovated the whole ecosystem is uh, is a fallacy. But unfortunately, but when you wanna, that's what everybody knows. But when someone wants to come in and, and they want to come in and be like, let's have a normal, reasonable conversation about this, you get accused of being like anti-wolf. But you yeah, have a I, quote in one of your things you wrote. I can't remember if it was you or someone else who said, we don't have to make the wolf out to be a hero to justify recovery. Right. That was David like, Meek. Why can't we just talk about it? Mm-hmm. In a way that's, I'm asking you, why can't it just be talked about in a matter of fact way? Like, is this the right thing to do? How do we do it correctly? But not have it be that we need to like spin these wild yarns. It's too polarized. You've got everybody at the poles and nobody in the middle when it comes to wolves. And and I think that evolved because of of wolf recovery in the northern Rockies and wolves were getting and they they crossed 2002. I think they, they exceeded recovery criteria and weren't delisted by Congress, unfortunately, until they were five times the original recovery criteria. And do so you have these, these, these groups suing to keep wolves protected under the Endangered Species Act, even as that population grows and grows and grows, I think that creates so much pull to one pole that you had a, an equal and opposite reaction the opposite way with people pulling equally hard and equally unrealistic things that they were saying on the other side and and it just got so violent everybody's still in their corners instead of meeting in the middle and just talking neutrally about it the opposite of your trophic cascade person the the equally ridiculous opposite is your person who is just in love with the idea of surplus killing (laughs) yeah i guess so they love it (laughs) they love it Right, it's like yep. the other extreme. The extreme. It's the it's the MSNBC yeah. Fox News split is trophic cascade surplus and- killing. <laughs> what is the middle? Yeah. Like, if you, I know it's not your business, but what is the middle ground? Like, lay out for me. Like, not only is it has it doesn't need to be your opinion. Articulate an opinion that, based on all of your exposure to people, uh, uh, different opinions about wolves. Imagine, if you will, the most sort of like moderate, kind of level-headed, consensus-minded sentence about collection of sentences about wolves. 
there's there's not many people there, but I I feel like I'm close. <laughs> I feel like I'm close to that because the, the wolves to me are not on a pedestal as some religious deity uh, that's going to save the world. And and I certainly don't hate wolves. Wolves are just uh, the largest member of the carnivore family. And and agencies manage foxes. We manage coyotes. We can manage wolves the same way. They're just another native um, species. And if we just look at them that way and say, well, let's bring them back onto the landscape. And when they're causing some unacceptable losses to livestock or unacceptable losses to native, other native species like elk or deer, then we go in and manage them. We, we bring that population down in that focal area, solve that problem. And, and other areas where they're not causing any problems and they're just restored to the landscape, they're good. Um, I, I don't know why more people can't look at it that way, but, but they don't. It's very appealing. It is. <laughs> I know. I mean, they're just, they're just big dogs. They're just another canid out there. I don't know why they have to be so special. If you imagine looking into a crystal ball, um, take the Northern Great Lakes. Will we get, um, will they be delisted to stay eventually? Yes. I think pretty soon. <clears throat> I mean, I don't, I don't know how you can justify leaving them on the list. So I do think maybe this year they'll be delisted. Do you, does it, does it, um, I know you don't do politics, but I don't know if you can even answer this. You probably can't answer this. <laughs> Does, will that happen independent of whatever happens with the next administration? Like, does that have its own life course or does there need to be some like very top down pressure it, on that? There isn't a lot of top down um, pressure because I think there's safeguards against you know, okay. like directives like that. There's, there's influence. There, there's no way you can take politics out of endangered species management and certainly not wolf management. So there are always going to be some political pressures and political um, considerations. That's just part of wildlife management. It's not, it's not pure science for sure. It's, it's an application of science and, and social science uh, to manage wildlife. So I think in, in the future, they'll be delisted. They certainly will be. What what we can't do, and I've heard people say this is, okay, I agree with delisting the Northern Rockies. I agree with delisting uh, the Great Lakes, but we've, we need wolves in more places. And so we need to keep them listed in all of the other places until they're recovered. That's not what the ESA does. If they're not in danger of extinction anymore in two big populations, then we don't we don't just move those polygons around the country until we get wolves everywhere we want wolves. That's yeah, no, I know. I a little bit disagree with you because those ideas weren't around at the time they were delisted. But it makes it um, it makes it better and easier to work. Being that if you look at grizzly bears, it makes sense to me that we would just we would gradually, as it's acceptable, delist. Some right, some idea of population groups, mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. than saying that, you know, rather than like undoing the whole protection across the entirety of the lower forty-eight, yep. we would be like, okay, this region's cool, that region's yep. cool, but that region's cool, that region's not cool. Mm -hmm. What you're talking about is those are subpopulations that were all part of the recovery, and so one subpopulation is doing really good, then definitely we want to take that one off off the table. We want to delist that, and we do want to keep those other ones because they're right from the start, part of the whole recovery plan. Gotcha. Whereas in, in gray wolves, the whole recovery plan was three populations of 100, and then it was increased to three populations of 150 in the northern Great Lakes area there. And and we reached that and exceeded that by five times. And then the western Great Lakes, it was um, like 1,400 in Minnesota where they're just threatened. And then it was 100 more in Wisconsin and the UP. And they exceeded that uh, a long time ago. And so those are two independent 
uh, recovery processes, and they've both been satisfied. Whereas a grizzly bear example, that one that they're delisting is just part of the overall recovery plan. Um, I'm going to do another crystal ball one for you. What, let's say, pick a comfortable number, 20 years, 25 years. What are some states that um, might have population of wolves that don't now? If you just kind of look at the, the biological. Like a trick question. No, no. The biological aspects <laughs> and the political aspects. If you'd asked yep. this question 20 years ago, there'd have been some real surprises. Yeah. Right. Right. Some of the Washington. Right. You'd have been like mm-hmm. California. People have been like bullshit. Mm-hmm. Right. But here we are. Yeah. So, um, you know, is Nebraska, right? Like, is is Nebraska going to be like, wow, who would have thought? Now Nebraska has a a wolf pack. I mean, you'd have to say Utah and Colorado because we've got wolves going into those, naturally going into those areas uh, as it is. And I think, and Mexican wolf recovery, we've since 2009, the Mexican wolf population has been increasing average of 12% per year. So that, the Mexican wolf population is going up and up and, and increasing towards a recovery goal, and yet I still get emails that say the Mexican wolf is spiraling towards extinction. Press the click the button here to donate to help us save the wolves <laughs> against the the evil state and federal agencies. And I think maybe they have my graph pinned sideways in their office or something, and they they think it's going. <laughs> they hung it up going, wrong. <laughs> I think they hung it up wrong because the, the graph is going up and up. So I I, I do feel that Mexican wolves are going to be. I don't know when recovery will happen because we're still in the early stages of recovery, but. That situation is going to look a lot better. We're going to have more wolves in, in Mexico, and we've got two recovery areas in the U.S. and Mexico because it's been a, a true binational um, process. And then we're going to have some of the Rocky Mountain states where they're going to expand into those Rocky Mountain states. And and really, I think a lot of this angst and polarity is going to relax once people have wolves around and realize they're not that bad. And if we have management ability to take care of problems where they, where they happen, I think in cases where wolves have been here a while, like for example, Alaska and, and Canada, they're not that big a deal because they've had them for a while. And I think all this stuff will, will settle down 20 years or so. That's a really funny thing about when, friends of mine that just really don't like wolves. Right? I got, I got friends that hate wolves. Mm-hmm. And, um, cause what they, what they, what their belief of what they'll do to the game populations but the sons of bitches all want to hunt in Alaska. Right, right. I'm and like, yeah, you wouldn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing, you know, wolves. <laughs> we, I mentioned David Meach. David Meach has been working on wolves for 60 years, which sounds bizarre, but he has. He's been working Ellesmere Island every year on Arctic wolves for 60 years. And and he he's very pragmatic about wolves. You would think someone that devoted your entire their entire life to, to wolves and wolf biology, but he's very pragmatic. He's, he's the one that says... Um, wolves are neither saint nor sinners except by those who try to make them so. Mm-hmm. So they're not. They're just they're just um, canids there. And but the the public perception I find is so skewed as to what a healthy population is, and people like to have this very unrealistic idea of how animals spread out on a landscape. So if there's a healthy population, it means I see them where I go. And like, we're looking at this big picture of Hell's Canyon that is chock full elk, but there's no elk in the picture. And people are like, something is wrong. And I've been at these public meetings. I had so many really cool wolf encounters in the, uh, Ketchum area, Ketchum Ranger district. And, uh, 
go to public meetings and it's like doom and gloom and mm-hmm. the wolf population is going down and the hunters mm-hmm. are killing them all and the damn cattle owners association yeah, I mean, is killing them all. Shoot, shovel, shut up. Right. Crowd. And it's mm-hmm. because people aren't seeing wolves when they're, I mean, some of these people were obviously not walking on trails, but they said they were, right? <laughs> um, but they're not seeing them when they're walking their dogs, and they're not mm-hmm. seeing them when they're driving their cars. And, I ain't seeing long tail weasels either. <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not charismatic enough. <laughs> I apologize. I think they're very charismatic. I was with a lot of non-game biologists last night, and uh, they're big fans of the weasel family. Oh, that's good. So, mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. Are we going to be arguing about jaguars in ten years? No, I don't think so. Why not? Jaguars are I'm never... ready to argue about jaguars. I know, I know. <laughs> Ocelots. You, you, you want to restore jaguars. I, I was involved in, in yeah. one workshop recently. That's true. Um, talking about jaguars. And jaguars were... I don't want to restore them. I just want them to wander back right. in and be cool. Right. Well, I, I I do. I think everybody, most everybody does. They, I don't know they, that I'm arguing cool. yet that we put them in crates and turn them out. No, but the one workshop I was at where there's uh, three advocacy groups that got together and wrote a big manuscript uh, advocating translocating from Mexico into the Mogollon Rim and the Gila National Forest. Oh. And this, is in Ponderosa Pine. this is Ponderosa Pine um, Forest and was never um, never habitat where they stayed. The Southwest, Arizona, New Mexico has always been places where transient animals came up. We haven't documented a, um, a female with young jaguar in the U.S., in Arizona or New Mexico anyway, for 120 years, yeah, wow. there hasn't been I mean, a female it, since since 1963, and a bunch have been a bunch have been killed in photographs since then, and no females. So, yeah, but what about if you went back into you know like we don't Coronado's time, man? Right? Yeah, we don't know that. And and there were there were jaguars, and there were some females and some reproduction, but but this was a marginal area. If you look at the Native American tribes, they have like no jaguar motif. Jaguar right? is not part of any of their stories. That tells you that tells you something about how common it was. In the in mm. the southwest, it's interesting. And so we we definitely want to um, make sure they can come back up and go back to Mexico. If they want. There was Alan Rabinowitz is probably the most famous jaguar person. He he started Panthera, which is a wild yep. cat uh, group worldwide. He's established jaguar uh, conservation areas and refuges in South America and Central America. Devoted his whole life to jaguars, and and when he talked about well, the Fish and Wildlife Service was being pressured by some environmental groups to designate critical habitat in Arizona and New Mexico. And when he heard that, he, he wrote an op-ed in, in New York Times and said, this is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous waste of money that we've got 170, 173,000 jaguars estimated from Sonora down to southern South America. And, and some groups are saying this little dry, arid land on the northern end of their distribution where they really just kind of moved in and moved out historically that is should be designated critical habitat. And critical habitat is part of the ESA, the Endangered Species Act. And and habitat to be designated as critical habitat has to be critical to the conservation of the species. And the Fish and Wildlife Service did population viability analyses where they included Arizona and New Mexico and then they excluded them. And and as you would expect with 173,000 jaguars elsewhere, that didn't change the probability of extinction. Um, at all. And, and Mexico itself has 4,800 jaguars estimated, and that increased in the last decade. And so there's that Arizona, New Mexico. Yeah, but I'm a patriot, for, man. I want American jaguars. Well, the, the groups that are asking for translocation up into Arizona, into central Arizona, New Mexico, at that meeting were some people that were involved in the conservation of jaguars in central Mexico, where they are. Okay. And those people said, You're at, you want to translocate how many? 
that's more than we estimate are in this northernmost population of jaguar. You can't you can't be taking our jaguars. I mean, we're trying to conserve that oh, population really? there. So, wow. yeah. so and, and then that got a lot of people looking at the carpet and scratching their heads like, oh, well, we didn't think of that. We were just going to go get some jaguars and bring them up here. I didn't, you know, I never knew. It's something I should research more or read up on more is like how, how often, how many, right? Okay, I'll like, send like you. Like how many were really, I'd like to know. I'll like, send you a book. Like what is the sort of, you know, I've seen it. I read a book um not too long ago, and it was it was just a exhaustive catalog of everything that could have possibly have been a reference of grizzly bears in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was Mexico. It got up into Colorado. Yeah, it covered basically Colorado South. Yeah, the Southwest. It was sort of like it was just thing after thing, like it from back the Spanish, mm-hmm. you know, early you know frontier day ranchers archaeological record, like everything that pointed to where were they, what was it like? I, I'd like to see that on Jaguars. If okay. it was if it was in fact that That's this is together. always fringe and they straight up and this is just like the, the natural edge of their habitat and just like mm-hmm. you might, you know, you know, mountain lion might kind of like flirt with the Alaska border now and then, but you'd hardly call Alaska like mountain lion country. Mm-hmm. But now mm-hmm. and then one might turn up and mm-hmm. and they do. If that was the case, then I guess my ask would be that we take the necessary steps to let that continue happening. Definitely. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Just not jaguars and crates up into the ponderosa pine. That, that seems really weird. That, that, but from, from a, from a, like from a armchair expert, not, not even that, an armchair curious person, that strikes me as being a little bit much. But Alan Rabinowitz, I mentioned, when, when Fish and Wildlife Service was trying to designate, which they did, designate critical habitat in Arizona, New Mexico for the jaguar, like the third third attempt. Ellen Rabinowitz did his New York Times uh, uh, article or op-ed saying that was the most ridiculous thing in the world, that you're wasting money talking about critical habitat and, and all the effects of critical habitat in Arizona. So here's a guy that devoted his whole life, and he's like at bangs with wolves. He's just pragmatic. He says that's not critical to the conservation of the species. But there's no doubt everybody wants to make sure that um, they're able to still come up and use that habitat and come back. Because I've been in in uh, mountain ranges where I know there's a jaguar in that mountain range, a mountain island. And it's pretty cool just to know that my son and I one time carried a uh, javelina that he shot off a tall mountain in the Coyote Mountains and in the dark through the thick brush. And we had a bloody javelina on our shoulders. And, and I knew that the jaguar, the jaguar that we knew about was in that part of the mountain range at that time. That's oh, is that right? right? So that yeah. adds a little element of, yeah, of interest when, when you're out there. Ocelot's the yeah. same way. When Right when mm-hmm. we left Sonora this year, you know, that article came out on uh, the camera traps mm-hmm. catching a down there. group of right. ocelot, mm-hmm. ocelots. Yeah, well, they got yeah. them in that, you know, yeah. in that King Ranch area down there in, in right. South Texas. Oh, yeah. do they? Yeah, and they're well, and it's, what's funny yeah. there is they're spending all this, you know, an aversion of things is it was funny there is they're like doing a lot of ocelot recovery work. And then it turns out that sort of the strongest, um, you know, the strongest populations are coming off these large cattle ranches. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. two populations. One's on a national wildlife refuge and another one is on the Uturi ranch. And I think some yep. neighboring ranches and that's, that's private lands. And you've got that, the old man Uturi who I think passed away recently just I've been on that committed. Ranch. Have you just yeah. committed to, to ocelot conservation and and so gorgeous it's, cat. It's very much, yeah. It's very much private lands. Uh, you've you've got to be managing on private lands. It's Mike Tuis and and there's a graduate student that um, that I know from Arizona that's down there working 
on ocelots right now. But I know Mike Tuis, who's run that program since I did my master's degree down there. But Flavor. obviously that, that species has a little bit northerly range than, than the jaguar, then? It's kind of, well, it's kind of the same in Arizona. It's kind of the same. There's historical records that come up through central Arizona or so, but not not a breeding population in, in Arizona. Like there is in Texas, South Texas, they're breeding. They have 60-some ocelots yeah. that they know wow. about. They're there. But Arizona, it's the same thing. It's one here and one there. And we have so many cameras in in uh, those mountain ranges now that we're capturing what's sneaking around in there. I checked is there out Are a, there any in Arizona right now? Any jaguars? I don't know. Oh, jaguars. Uh, yes. Right now? Uh, as of, Well, as of September. I mean, uh, I, don't, I, don't well, get, I know there was one around and it turned up. Its hide turned up on social media. got shot. It seems in like Mexico. it got shot in Mexico. It went back to Mexico and got shot. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a different one that when I was down by Douglas in September, someone told me about one that was down there. I don't know if I can say where. I probably won't say where, but in the U.S. In one and of it got ranges. picked up by a trail cam or a houndsman found it? No, a lot of trail cams. Huh. I had I had checking out a, a lion that a hunter killed because all the mountain lions get checked out at the Game and Fish office. And he was he got it out of the Santa Ritas and he said, I had a bunch of cameras in the Santa Rita Mountains. This was several years ago. And I said, Oh, you got a bunch of cameras set out. You ever get one of them spotted cats? He goes, Yeah, all the time. Oh, well, that's cool. And like, wow. I mean, hunters have trail cams out and they're getting jaguars on their trail cam. We've that's talked about cool. this before. That's There's a cool. book called Candid Creatures and it's like uh trail cam images. Mm-hmm. And there's a jaguar standing in the snow. Oh, right. I've seen, yeah, it's like I've the seen only snow image. It's pictures. like the only image, I think. Mm-hmm. Maybe like the only image in existence or something of yep. a jaguar in the yep. snow. There's, you were talking about the historical record of jaguars. We have that list that the Game and Fish Department maintains. You did. Of jaguar records going all the way back. But a lot of those, even in more recent times, are like, like some of the jaguar records that some of these groups were using for their modeling was some high school teacher saw a black jaguar across the road. Yeah. And black jaguar is the color phase. It's the jungle phase. It's an Amazon thing. You never have black jaguars in Mexico and to the north. Never. So if someone says they see a black jaguar, we know right away, well, it wasn't a jaguar. I'm not sure what it was. Yeah, it's hard to sort. I mean, there's a, there's a thing of like measuring the validity, right? Right. Yeah. And so we've got like three classes, class one, class two, class three. I forgot what the criteria are, but it's to rank them for, for veracity, for yeah, yeah. Um, how reliable they are. But some of those, some of those are are just sightings, and some groups will want to include those as reliable and not. So you have to be careful, and that's why a table like that's uh, important. But there's a book called Borderland Jaguars. You have not seen that one, no? Okay, I'll send it to you, uh, Carlos Lopez Gonzalez and and Dave Brown. And and in there they they have probably not as complete as our list, but they have a, a, an account of the historical records of jaguars. Oh, I'd like to see it. Yeah. I need to get my opinion straight. <laughs> I know I like them, <laughs> right? I'd like, get, I'd like to get pounced and scratched, kind of scratched by one. Kind of. Just to leave a scar. Yeah. You'd have to have a scar. Right on yeah, my it's eye. cool to know that there's jaguars out there. Very. Right across the packs, man. <laughs> 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 one nice scratch. <laughs> Rub some dirt in there to get it infected. So it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. scar up nice, yeah. <laughs> uh, Kelly, you got any final thoughts, questions? Yeah, I do. I got, I got a question for you. I was talking with a buddy of mine uh, this morning. Um, I drive back over here and, and he's, I was checking in with him cause he's, he's old forest service dude and he's good at getting grant money and uh, he's getting a lot of in-kind cash for habitat work on his place. And this is kind of his, mm-hmm. uh, retirement job as he calls it, learning to be a, a farmer and he's, uh, planting a bunch of plant species and, and setting his place up for mule deer, uh, wintering habitat and upland game 
He's big, loves, loves the pheasants and quail. And he is kind of running me through his list of what he's got coming up and some of his successes and failures. And uh, I said, well, yeah, a lot of work right now, but hopefully you'll figure out how to strike a balance. He's like, yeah, I don't think so. He's like, (laughs) to be honest with you, I'm not sure any of this shit's supposed to be here. (laughs) And I mean, he is working with ecologists and he's got a litany of really good contacts from his past life. But that did just make me think of this question. Like, do you find yourself ever get kind of bogged down in the management of things? Like we've been manipulating landscapes Mm. and species for so long. Do you ever kind of get to these points where you're like, sure, I guess, screw it. Because it's not, we're so far away from what it was or what we think it was. I don't think so. I I mean, I don't, I don't think I get, get that discouraged. There's, there's things like in the wolf recovery world where I I just wish it wasn't a constant stream of litigation and litigation and litigation. Wish we could just get on with the business of conserving um, carnivores and, and managing them as, um, as species. But but uh, I don't. I, I think I, I'm optimistic. I think there's just a lot of really good work going on right now throughout the West, habitat-wise and and uh, movement-wise and everything. That's great, Phil. We you know someone needs to address the elephant in the room that like basically like Giannis has nothing to do with this show anymore. <laughs> he's moved on to bigger and I better was, things. Yeah. He's out. He's out. Giannis once again is out on assignments, making his own a, content. I was assuming you heard you, I was coming, and the, the no, comment, he's kinda. all busy with. We got a lot of we got a lot of irons in the fire, and Giannis tending to a couple. of He's in Fond du Lac. You I got saw. well, yeah. He's out ice fishing, but um, <laughs> uh, you, you don't have any. You don't have your thing with, that makes the Giannis sounds anymore, do you? Uh, I was thinking about bringing it to oh, uh, right. to Nashville next week, so we could, you know. Yanni's there. Oh, he won't be there either. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, you got Dude, me. <laughs> I'm changing his damn thing. He's not even like a co-host anymore. No. Man. So funny. He's a, he's abandoned. He's moved on. He's he's left the nest. He's just busy. Yeah. Yeah. If you weren't cracking the whip, making starting the miss old Yanni. Work. <laughs> he's yeah. not a true outdoorsman. No. Yeah. <laughs> Too much skiing. He's missing some good skiing, though, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, should t- I should send him a note about that. Yeah. It's puking the gnar, man. <laughs> he's in, he's in Fond du Lac. I went to high school about 40 minutes south of there and college about an hour northwest of there. So I'm familiar with that country. The only, uh, the, all, everything skiers say is annoying, but uh, <laughs> I did hear one good one the other day. Someone was talking about the powder, and he said, um, that gnar isn't going to shred itself. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. Man. Blower pal. All right, Jim Hafflefinger. What, what's your favorite? Of all the pamphlets and books you read, I think you, you say that your masterpiece is the Jack book. It Jack is. Rabbit Hunting Jack Tips and book. Recipes. Yep. yep. And that's even available as a PDF. My, on my website is deernut.com. Um, just D-E-R-Nut.com. Um, you, I've got a whole bunch of PDFs that are magazine articles that I've written. And you can. I've got Deer of the Southwest. I brought you a copy. Um, which is cow's whitetail and desert mule deer in the southwest, northern Mexico. Um, that's available on the website. And um, uh, my Instagram, Jim Deer. And, and Deer has an E after the end, like John Deer. Oh, in fact, it's a little John Deer, Deer logo that I photoshopped to look like a mule deer. Do you want to come down and do a jackrabbit hunt with you, man? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I'd like to. 
You guarantee me that we'll get tons of them, right, without trying very hard? Well, no. You, you <laughs> drive around. If you want tons, you drive around and shoot them out of the window, and we don't do that. We walk. I mean, it's you guys don't walk the land. And so man. we don't walk back with tons, but it's a fun hunt. Ten-pound um, jacks. You get bit up by mites quite a bit with those? Mm-mm. No. They're not all mighty? No. They've got they've got a couple internal parasites like the uh, the, the bot fly larva, which oh, yeah. is a big thumb-sized larva. Cute. Yeah, that's cute when they get under the skin. Just there subcutaneous. It around. doesn't affect the meat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But we, in our junior jack camp that I developed for kids 10 years ago, we bring kids together and we, we show them how to jackrabbit hunt, show them how to um, clean and, and cook the jackrabbits. We find some of those big, ugly bot fly larvae under the skin and... And we turned a, a liability into a, a, a positive when we, we started, we brought a little spring scale. No, we started weighing them and we gave out an award for the largest bot fly larvae. That's, That's nice. Awesome. And pretty soon the kids are going, do I have one? Do I have one? Does mine have one? Can That's you find great. one on mine? So when you grab them, see, I thought because you guys are down where it doesn't get cold in the winter enough. When you grab it, them, your arms don't just get no. mauled by mites. <laughs> nope. And we hunt them, they're open year round, but we hunt them um, October to March, just the gotcha. cooler season. So, just so we can bad. keep the meat and there is less ect- ectoparasites on them. Ectoparasites. Yep. As opposed to the endo inside, ecto oh, or outside. I like that. Like the like the insects on the outside. Yeah. But it's not not bad at all. I mean, you just don't, when you grab them, they're nice and clean. And you skin them and you've got some really nice clean meat that cooks up like beef. Great. Wow. Wow. Yeah. How much did you learn, Phil? Like on a one to ten. Were you paying attention? I was a solid eight. <laughs> so like, you, guys, oh, eight. you guys ran the gamut. You were, wow. So many things were talked about. Yeah. Yeah. You soaking it up? Soaking it up. Mostly I was fantasizing about my Neanderthal mingling <laughs> in this hypothetical situation. Yeah, Phil had to go back. He, he went back behind that curtain for a while. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Came was, back out again. It's imagining like a Romeo and Juliet situation. <laughs> Forbidden love. Phil's search history is a dark place. <laughs> that sounds like a movie. I know. Tonight I'm going to want it. Tomorrow I'm going to try to tap into Phil's uh, incognito search <laughs> Sir, I got to figure out how to do that. <laughs> you don't want to. Uh, all right, Jim Heffelfinger, outdoorsman, biologist, man in the man in the arena, a That's man true. in the arena when it comes to wildlife and wildlife management, and um, and a great advocate for hunters and wildlife. Thank you for joining us. True. Thanks. It was great to be here. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in our capital, Helena, Montana. Each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Scott personally calls every customer 
buys one of his rods. Head to MontanaCastingCo.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. 